It's a sled. He's dead. The box contains his wife's head. Vedas, his father, they're allergic to water. She's his sister and her daughter. You watched it from. Damn, this is what's exciting one, damn it. This is an exciting one. I've been looking forward to this movie for, well, ever since I saw it two months ago. So let's get into it. Hi, I'm Wade. I'm Siggy, and you're listening to You Watched It Wrong, the podcast where we pick a movie and we're going to go through it scene by scene, knit by pick, and just by just d- dissect the hell out of this thing. There you go. Today's movie. Seam rip it. We're going to remove its limbs. And other body parts. Parts. Unmentionable body parts, to be specific. (laughs) To not be specific, (laughs) but kind of draw a dotted line around the... All right. We are discussing the movie The Wolf of Snow Hollow, the second feature film written and directed by Jim Cummings. Um, I am so excited to talk about this movie. I can barely... I'm chomping at the bit to use a horse metaphor for a wolf movie. Because it's a really good movie. It's There's a re- lots to chew on, lots to sink your teeth into, whether it be bits or naughty bits. But first, track marks. That's right. The game invented by Wade Carney. And here's the rules. The contestant is going to hear the name of a track listing on a movie's motion picture soundtrack. Not the songs, but the motion picture score. And then through context clues, the contestant needs to determine the name of the movie based on the track names <sighs> uh and wade is very good at this game i'm not so good oh. so i think we should just make a tradition that i go first on easy mode and then we work our way up to you going on hard mode all right well i'm i'm all for that because you always do even better than i think you're going to do and i expect I've, you to do very I've well i've missed a few though so i wouldn't say that right but you know it's a uh, law of averages law, law of large numbers <laughs> You can't just cherry pick your one failure and say that that's a trend. That's not how it works. All right, hit me with it. This is track marks. Now, are these in order or not in order? No, you're no. Uh, you give me the easy. Oh, that's one, right. I give you the... you the hard one. Oh, okay. So, ooh. Well, then I have to start giving you easy ones. <laughs> <laughs> hey. okay, this will be fine. This will be fine. Trust me. Okay. This one is a par. Par nine. Okay. All right. All right. Par nine. Here we go. Overture. Good. Intermission. Uh oh, wait. Hmm. Okay, keep going. Keep going. Follow the leader. Uh, all right. Away we go. Away we go. <laughs> That's a damn good one. That would be all Alexi Murdoch songs. Well worth it. Um, instant chase. Instant chase. Intermission coming at the beginning just sounds familiar. These are not in order, by the way, just so you know. Oh, these aren't in order. Okay. What did I say? These are are not in order. So intermission coming second was not a clue. All right. The most of the, the rest of them are generally in order, but it's overture, intermission. I'm just giving you those two out the bat for give you a sense of the length of this movie. Those are like gimmies. That's like, That's a gimme, right. So already you're thinking three hours plus, right? That's what you're going with. Any, any that you've, I've narrowed the scope for you. 
Oh, and wait, I'm doing this, this, this a work. mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> Why don't you shut your mouth? <laughs> Good job. It was going. The next one was Great Pursuit, Gullible Auto Meyer, Adios Santa Rosita, Retribution, then the Big W, and it's so a mad, big mad, w, mad, mad, mad world. I would have got that. Yeah. Okay. So you did. You came way under par. One, two, three, four, five. You were four under yeah. par. Right. Very good. I mean, you Ernest know, Gold. This is Wade Carney giving me the movie with the intermission. It's not going to be Lawrence of Arabia. It's going true. Going to be it's a mad, so, mad, mad, mad world. Are you coloring every <laughs> every comment and criticism I make from here on out? Well, it isn't like Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> okay. I finally All saw right. Lawrence of Arabia though because I've had this long. Like like um, uh, ill-fated quest with Lawrence of Arabia. Like I'd been waiting. Just I decided because it took me so long. I had, I went through my mo- my young years and well into my adulthood before I ever. I, I was like I have not seen this movie. So I was living in Austin and I decided, oh, it's playing at the Paramount. They play it like every couple of months. So I'll go see it there. And I missed it every time, every time. And then I came to Los Angeles and there they're playing at the Objection and they're playing it here and they're playing it and I go oh and I was in Chicago and they were playing it live there or, or in theaters there and I go I need to see it in 70 mil on the big screen and I kept missing it so finally I got when I finally got the largest TV of that I have owned to this point I went fuck it I'm seeing Lawrence of Arabia I'm never going to make it to the theater and so yeah. I finally saw it and then I think I was in group therapy and I said I saw Lords of Arabia, and they, he said, "Oh, yeah, you know that's required viewing for anyone going through a mental breakdown." <laughs> and he, he, he said it without irony. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, well, I saw it at the Music Box in Chicago before they um, did their little rehab refurbishment uh, and the old seats, and oh, that boy. was about the most ass-busting experience. Um, I've been, and I, I love that movie though. I've seen it uh, multiple times. Okay. I've, um, I've not, uh, I've not been in the renovated music box. I only knew the ass busting seats. Yeah. Those are, those are not, not fun. The worst um, experience. Give you I reason had. to concentrate on the movie instead of <laughs> any other sensation. <laughs> the worst experience I have was watching Branagh's Hamlet at the fine arts in Chicago because they never redid their seats and it was just mm. awful. Um, seconded only to the double feature of um, Nicholas Hammond's Amazing Spider-Man TV pilot and Spider-Man 2 both at the new Bev and they had redone their seats <laughs> what are your favorite movie seats no okay <laughs> track marks part two so did I make it par did I do par you were well under par under? I was one under okay four oh, under cool. par nice see I, all I gotta do is hype up how bad I am and then I'll do well see, oh, that's yeah, how it yeah, works yeah, there you go so the audience thinks I'm an idiot. Either way, <laughs> you don't know yourself. I, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm doing these in order. Um, soundtrack order. I am going to blank out character names, though. Can you do a funny sound when you do it? Sure. <laughs> um, they're mostly the same character names, but not always. Okay. okay. And um, I'll leave them in if I don't think I'll give it away. Okay. But I'm probably wrong about that. 
Okay, track one. This is the John Faith. Dunbar. This is this is because of John Dunbar, isn't it? <laughs> John, uh, track one. Beirut vacation. Oh, oh, um, uh, naked gun from the files of police squad. Yeah, god damn it. <laughs> By Ira Newborn. I, I thought if I could get past the first stroke, then I'd have you for a little while. Oh, you probably would. You, I wouldn't have gotten it, but I the the uh, I. It's funny because I had that soundtrack, and um, uh, when you said Beirut vacation, all I could think of was John the new John Hamm movie Beirut, and that was just filling my mind, and I couldn't I couldn't get it out of my mind. So then I went by, and then suddenly, as soon as I like said, forget it. Next one, suddenly, there it was. All right. Well, track four was Doc of the Blank because it's Nordberg. You would have got Nordberg. Yeah. <laughs> Doc of the Blank slash Murder by Cake. I, I wanted. To, <laughs> I was looking forward cake. to the guesses for Murder by Cake. Yeah, that's that's the problem when you when you when you get it too soon is all the fun stuff is gone. <laughs> all the stuff you were looking forward to, it's just gone. Well, since both of those, thank you. That was a good one. Can you want to read them off? What were the other tracks? Oh, sure. Uh, Drebin the Hero, main title. Doc of the Nordberg, Murder by Cake. Drebin takes a snoop slash two Ludwigs. Our Miss Spencer slash airbag Drebin. Sting slash beeper mom slash anyone can be an assassin. Beeper doc slash the exciting chase. (laughs) Which could have been. It's from Mad World. A lonely Drebin, Drebin acrobat slash meet Miss Spencer. The seduction, Franco's bump bump. (laughs) Slash somebody killed my scene. Um, out on the ledge, over the shoulder boulder holder, <laughs> slash the slaughterhouse, Drebin's hay slash I'm a lucky woman slash sting alternate. The third out beep. That's a good. That's a good one. It's a good clue right there. The third out beep. Well, all of these were yeah. I told, out on the ledge Frank, and Frank. Frank. Yeah. I must kill Frank. <laughs> and then into something good, which you weren't going to get that far. As of that's that's really fun. Well, since those took so, uh, that didn't take very long to do. I'm going to throw you this one game. Okay. I've been right. I've been I've just found that I've been trying We're to going create, for a four hour episode. No, here. I'm just I was trying to. Uh, we already did that. We don't we don't we don't need to swing our dicks that much more. Um, I create I was creating this had a great idea for a game. And the only reason we haven't done it yet is because I can only think of one question. <laughs> and I'm, I doesn't look like I'm ever going to come around to the rest of it, so we're just going to do this right now. Okay. This game is called Past Tense People. So tense I, what I'm going to do is the I'm going to give you a name and uh, whose last name I have altered to be Present Tense. <laughs> And then if you make the name that I give you past tense, what movie is that character in? <laughs> does, it, does it make sense? Yes, perfectly. Okay. All right. Here's, here's your one question. <laughs> okay. The na- present tense name is Lori Stroll. Lori Stroll? Wait, you know what? That's not even the right... Is that the right present tense version of that name? I don't know. 
Lori <laughs> Stroll. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. I'm so wrong. It's Lori Stride. Not Lori Stroll. This game is fucked yeah, that'd from be the beginning. Strode. Right, yeah. Uh, Laurie Strode. Uh, but the answer is not Laurie Strode, and I don't. I, that does not ring a bell. I so win. I lose. <laughs> but I can conjugate the verb. You can conjugate, and for that, you you win. You win anyway. You 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 have. Let's just say that the, you you conjugated verbs correctly, and the author of the game didn't. <laughs> so who's really you the big dum dum? You had one question to research. <laughs> I, you, I had one question. Yeah. One. The well, movie, you got the question right. The it was, mo- <laughs> no, it was the question. You got wrong. Yeah, that's right. The movie is Halloween. Oh, okay. Jamie Lee Curtis plays Laurie Strode. Jamie Lee Curtis. And I thought the present tense of Strode was Strode. You know, all those times Mike Meyer says her name, and I, you think I would have... <laughs> you think I would have stuck. He's a big blabber, I don't know. Laurie Strode. Is that you know, where can I find Laurie Strode? <laughs> you know what? That would actually be a great thing to do. Is Directions to... to Laurie Strode's house. We should dub Halloween with like Michael Myers being a utter chatterbox, just asking <laughs> everybody every question. Hey, yeah, where can I get? <laughs> hey, you. <laughs> Ooh, look at her. Look. Oh, look what she's doing. <laughs> I wish she'd lift up these blinds so I could see better. <laughs> You got your your gutters are full. <laughs> I can I can get those out for you if you just you know I'll leave my card on the porch, and now I'm just gonna run inhumanly fast away. As you can see from my workman's clothes, I'm ready to <laughs> do physical labor. I brought some of my own tools. <laughs> do you mean to whittle anything? Don, this closet is terrible. You know, I can do closet reorganizing really well. Ow! My eye! (laughs) I was... You were trapped in the closet. I'm just trying to get you out. R. Kelly might be in there. That was a dumb joke. That's getting cut. We could double your storage capacity and get those... How about getting those shoes organized? Aren't you tired of not being able to find the right pair when you got a hot date? I like this idea. Should totally do it. But instead, we're going to talk about the wolf of Snow Hollow and not any other geographical feature of major metropolises. So, here's how I heard about this movie. Okay. Um, Tell me. So I, I had heard about Jim Cummings in general. I heard about his first movie, Thunder Road, when Ryan Johnson uh, was on Doug Loves Movies and expressed praise for it on the podcast. And I was surprised that I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it or him before, and so I made note of it. But it wasn't available any way that I could watch it. Um, but then I noticed it would pop up on Prime, and I'd put it on my list, and then it would go away, and then it would come back and go away. And then one day when it was finally on Prime, I decided to go for it because I'm a cheapskate. <laughs> or uh, I'm more broke than cheapskatey. Um, and, <laughs> and then when I saw it, it was brilliant film. Just instantly loved it deeply. And despite being on Amazon Prime, I, I bought it in- anyway. 
<laughs> just instantly on iTunes because I didn't I didn't want to lose access to it. I was like, this is this is amazing. And then immediately after I did that, which was right after I finished Thunder Road, uh, I immediately went, what else has this guy done? And then I so I looked and I immediately found that his second feature had just come out a week's earlier, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And then I bought it right then and there. Sight and unseen. Sight unseen. And um, I've probably watched it six times since, since October when I got it. And I think about it daily. Every full moon. Yeah, watches. About that. In fact, when you texted me about it, your initial reaction to it, I was so thrilled and elated that I watched it on my phone in bed, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I went I was checking my messages right before I went to bed and I got your message and I was so happy that you that you felt that way too and I got in bed and I just watched the whole thing again. So how did you how, uh, well, I already told I already I already divulged how you came to see it, but what was your first viewing experience like? Uh, I was just said it was uh, October and I was looking for horror movies anyway and you recommended this movie so I watched it on um, rented it on YouTube my first time uh, renting a movie on YouTube and watching it on my Apple TV and YouTube your Apple TV client sucks it's a terrible viewing experience if I just want to go back like seven seconds because I missed something uh <laughs> It's impossible to do it in any convenient way, and I will jump back like five minutes and then have to find my spot, and I'll skip ahead too much. It's terrible. Terrible. Nice fucking job, YouTube. Like, <laughs> what, you can't throw a little money at that problem? Jesus Christ. Fuck. Fucking hell. Okay, anyway. <laughs> that's fitting. Go with that. Keep going with that. <laughs> uh, that's it. I, that, that's all I got to say on that. Uh, but I like uh, I like the movie. I, I do. I, I, I As you're going to find out, dear it's, listener. That is strange because YouTube's. Um, I'm so used to YouTube's. Like, I hit my backspace. If I'm watching it on the computer anyway, I do my backspace arrow and then I go back five seconds. It's great. Right? On, on uh, iTunes, Apple here in the, uh, on the computer, if I hit my backspace, it takes me all the way back to the beginning of the movie. And I'm like, who wants that? Who wants that? Tell me. How often do you like. Oh, quickly, I need to go back to the entire beginning of this movie, like as quickly as possible. So maybe, I'm just saying, maybe it's Apple and not YouTube. I don't know. Normally I'm not, I don't know. Could be Apple. I don't know. Yeah, you know, Apple should provide an API. I mean, other apps can do it. You just do a little, depress the left half of the Apple TV remote and you you jump back five seconds, you know? Right. If all the other ones can manage it, I think (laughs) YouTube can manage it. There you go. So I... The thing that, that the only thing that concerns me about talking about this movie is that I is, is just how deeply I feel about it, and uh, I <laughs> um, for me I'm like it's worrisome. I'm it is because uh, like I I'm like usually like to think that if if you don't like something that I like that's fine I'm actually and or if you like something I don't I, the more you can like the better great awesome you know and I'm interested in hearing everyone's different views on things. But there's occasionally in movies here and now again that this is one I feel like I will emotionally react badly <laughs> <laughs> to not just negative things, but like things that just aren't the same experience as mine, which is a bad quality. But that's also weird because over the course of the viewings, I evolved in my thinking about this movie so much and only in a deepening way. This movie, though, 
this sounds like a contradiction to what I just said, but it, it's not. The, this, this movie has become like Miller's Crossing for me in that every moment in the movie not only works each time I see it, but it feels like the, it works as good as the first time I saw it. Hmm. But then at the same time, I continue to find it a richer experience every time the more I think about it during and between viewings. You know, it's just, it's grown like this. And uh, I just, I really love it. And I can't wait to talk about the movie's editing, which is more and more impressive every time I've seen it. So you've seen it twice now? I have, yeah. Okay. And uh, no, the editing is very impressive. I, I will bring that up. Right. And we get there, yeah, for sure. So, not to, to, to bring up Michelle Citron's sucker punch from last episode, <laughs> but what is this Professor, movie about? Professor Citron, good teacher. Good teacher. I learned a lot from her. Me too. Absolutely. But what is this movie about? Um, and uh, Jim Cummings said in one of the special features to this movie, he said that the conception of the movie, and I imagine in part, uh, came from thinking about how when someone who's a werewolf wakes up the next day after turning back into a man again and sees the destruction that he's caused and has no memory of it must seem a lot like what a blackout drunk feels the morning after. Mm. And he said, and that's, and so that's where the germ of this came from. And that's certainly there, but to my mind, that feels almost secondary um, to what he found, or at least the way that I'm is, um, it's all about male rage and male anger and its misuse and um, the form and the form it takes. And he definitely minds high drama, high comedy and high frights from how anger manifests itself in men unwilling to address it honestly, if at all. So it's funny because the first time I watched it, I was like, I, it was like I was like how I was with Walter White. I was so with John Marshall and like felt like um, the movie, the way it treated the attacks and cross-cutted it with the aftermath uh, and the crime scene investigations and the funerals was all like showing how the administrative and the emotional part of it that follows a tragedy is almost worse. This is the real horror show. <laughs> But then I, I will go back to a second time. Even though often played for laughs. You're usually right. getting laughing and, moments. So. And you're getting laughs with it. And yeah. so, but then I go back and I'm going, no, wait, no. I, it's, it's, it's amazing how much I just immediately fell in line with him. And then second viewing going, no, no, yeah, he's really not handling this well <laughs> <laughs> at all. And then realize... Uh, and, and so it, I was almost embarrassed it took me a, a whole second viewing to, to, to pull that apart I go no yeah no he's not he's not he's not handling this well well so if uh, if I can give my take on sure. what it's about so I I watched um, Thunder Road uh, in between my viewings of uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow and I, I love Thunder Road um, I think Thunder Road might be a perfect movie even though I think I like Wolf of Snow Hollow more. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of feel the same way. More. Yeah, they're both great. I love them I both. I would say Thunder Road's a better movie, but I, I will watch Wolf of Snow Hollow all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, both movies are about, to me, and they feel like they feel like the same character, but like in an alternate timeline yeah. <laughs> where like two things went differently in his childhood and now he's 
here instead of there and he's going by his middle name instead of his first name or mm. something you know like he's with his yeah, dad instead of with his mom they share a um, lot of dna these two movies a lot and what they what they're both about to me is about um the uh the frustration that you can't live up to obligations right yeah that that you have for yourself that others have for you that you feel you 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 need to the obligations you have to other people, daughters, <laughs> parents, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, your community, and uh, Thunder Road looks at that and through like one lens, and Wolf of Snow Hollow looks at that specifically through the lens of of anger, because a lot of those expectations are around like these traditional male roles mm-hmm. of you know your your father's the sheriff, your father has this gear he can slip into where he like he can just be calm and reassuring. He can say a few words of leadership and everybody's like geared up to go on this manhunt for this werewolf. Um, but he he can't step he's not ready to step into those shoes. He can't offer that same kind of leadership to his team. Uh, he's not a calm presence uh, uh, in any circumstance. He can't uh, live up to the expectations of his daughter or even the very low expectations uh, of his ex-wife. <laughs> Um, extremely low expectations. Um, uh, the community is angry at him for not being able to say, uh, solve this crime, and he's hates himself for for not being able to do that. And um, and that's what toxic masculinity is, right? It's the idea that there's like there's one kind of male to be, right. and not everyone is equipped to do that, or nobody can do it all the time. Um, right, and feeling anger and shame at your inability to do this kind of impossible thing leads you to act out in ways that are like trying desperately to fulfill that stereotype, which leads you to act out in angry, violent, aggressive ways uh, to compensate. Um, And then you throw in the the self-medication of the uh, alcohol and you have a real uh, uh, a guy uh, really falling apart here. I mean, it, it shows how much he's thought about this in not just from a um, kind of displaying what toxic masculinity is, but also how sympathetic it is when you're in that position in a way. We're like, um, uh, like he says at one point after his father passes away, he says, the last thing I said to him was a lie. The yeah. la- I lied to him, the last thing I said. And I, I thought about that on a lot, going like, well, was it a lie? Because the last thing he said he to says, him was, we'll he says, him. go get him. And he says, yeah, I'm gonna. Which is in that, he becomes like a little boy, like a tiny little boy there, just talking to his big, you know, imposing father figure. Yeah. And, um, and later after his death, he says, the last thing I said to him was a lie. So did I wouldn't think that John Marshall never had any intention of catching this monster. He obviously did. But yeah. when to when someone has that low a self-esteem of them about themselves, how they put all this expectation of what you should be on yourself, but you then think you can't live up to it, so then you cope in ways to shut everyone out and it's funny how like alcohol is like I'm feeling out of control. 
I can't control the things around me. So now I'm going to take a substance that will actually make me not in control. And then I feel better. Yeah. It's yeah. really crazy. I mean, it's, 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 that's how it works. And it's really weird thinking, but that's really kind of, I think that's what's going on. Right. And so he says, I, I lied to him. And then, um, so you're going, so did you just, did you equate your failure with a lie? Or did you think that you never could have lived up to that task? So by telling him, you retroactively now think it's a lie. I think it's, you know, so, it's believing that his dad would have been able to do it. Right. Or that um, a dad will be able to do it. You know, a right. man will be, a able, man to, would be able to right. to achieve this thing that he must achieve. And if I can't do it, then I'm not a real man. And I really like what you said earlier about the thing. And I, I wanted to throw in something, but then I caught myself because I thought it might be insensitive or, or, or rather a false equivalency. But it sound when you were discussing this impossible standard that we have placed on ourselves, that men have placed on ourselves that are on men, it made me think of the impossible standards that women have to do with one with I got to look perfect. I have to be a career mom. I have to make, keep a perfect home and I have to, or I have to be a career woman and want a career yeah. and do that extensively. And I have to keep a perfect home and I have to keep a perfect house and I have to have perfect kids and they got to be clean and well and, and, and focused. And, and it's, and then the man just is like, in theory is just like, I just got to keep a good career and I don't give a crap about the rest of it. And like, you know, it's, it's similar in that impossible standard, but it is strange how like there's so much more impossible standard on one gender than the other. Well, I mean, you know, for the male stereotype, is like, I can never show emotion. I can mm. never show weakness. I can never, right? Um, uh, you know, I can never admit I'm afraid. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. uh, like I all these like uh, at least fifty percent of the emotional space that exists in every person, every healthy person, I must deny it. Right. Exactly. Right. And, yeah. And that's like, it's, that is impossible and it's damaging to try to maintain that. Very damaging. And uh, I'm going to do a quick plug here for uh, one of my favorite books I read, I think last year, uh, was a memoir by one of my favorite comedians, Robert Webb of the, of that Mitchell and Webb. Uh, and it's called How Not to Be a Boy. And it's a, um, it basically deals directly with that, like, how, like, there is no acceptable, there is no socially acceptable emotion for men to have except anger. That's the only one that society will, like, will deem okay for them to show. Everything else is weakness. And so, uh, and how damaging to not just the boys and the men, but to the world. <laughs> Uh, and so I was really, it's a really moving book. It's a fantastic book. It's very funny. It's very touching. It's very heartbreaking. I highly recommend that. How Not to Be a Boy by Robert Webb. And, uh, and you see John Marshall hilariously try to navigate this world of perfectly stated views and things, especially like all throughout the whole movie, but also most notably when he's asking his daughter if he to carry the pepper spray with her all the time. Yeah. 
You know, he's like, he's like, yeah, I know it was a weird gift, but uh, uh, it's uh, no no reason. It's not nothing to worry about. Just I want you to promise me to find it and carry it with you at all times. <laughs> and, she, and she says, uh, more people die in tobacco in Utah than in. And she, he goes, yeah, I saw your post about that. It was very interesting, <laughs> but um, those people didn't die like this. Oh, when he says, I just see you and how you dress. How do I dress? Perfectly reasonably. <laughs> just I see the way that other people look at you. Women too. <laughs> like you can't. Like it's this weird minefield of everything. That he has to make sure it's all perfectly said and all. Yeah. And yeah. And it doesn't add up to anything that makes sense. It doesn't. Exactly. It's the worst bully base of logic than if yeah. he just said whatever. Um so yeah, anyway, um, getting ahead of myself, I would like to go uh, into the, the, the Sigi Lama patented, the patented Sigi Lama scene by scene, because uh, there's so much wonderful, rich stuff to get into. Uh, but uh, just one more thing to say quickly, you know, um, a lot of things, and I, I kind of wish I hadn't read other <laughs> reviews on this movie. It's, that's why uh, I don't do it. That's why you don't do it. Um, my, own, my own opinion is fine. <laughs> um, but a lot of talked about maybe the expectation of the werewolf genre on this movie. And uh, if you're going to talk about that, then you know, Cummings has made a, a distinct and unique entry to it, for sure. I, I, feel, I feel like it does satisfy a lot of those beats, you know, save for the transformation scenes. Uh, but, uh, but it does have one, you know, a la Breaking Bad. I'll get into that later. But, you know, I don't think of that... It's a werewolf movie. I don't really think of it as a werewolf movie, even that's not a pejorative. But part of the movie's strengths is that it's not bound to the expected pleasures of those movies, but also not thumbing its nose at those pleasures either. It's telling the story very honestly with all these themes baked into not only into the scenes, but into the scenes reason for being there which is why this is top-notch screenplay. And anyone who says otherwise, I mean, I can't... Can, can we not do this at Bonanza's? Jesus Christ, have a nicer time at Abu Ghraib. Thank you. Mm. All right. Bonanza's is a great name for a restaurant. <laughs> well, I, I wondered, I was like, is that the Bonanza Steakhouse I used to go to as a kid all the time? Mm. Didn't look like it, so I was going to say no. Um, all right. Utah? <laughs> so... Um, Opening credits. Yes. Pretty effective. Very simple. Sweeping shots of Utah. Beautiful. Uh, very Mountains, and trees. Then, and then when they invert them and layer them over each other, simple, but really effective. Let's talk about that choice. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Why? Why upside down mountains and trees here? I have thoughts. Please, lay them on me. Okay. So I've been... Noticing more and more in horror movies lately, I think, although I can only think of one other specific example of just upside down shots, like yeah. becoming a new trope or visual motif. And I haven't really decoded what they mean when I see them other than you're it's like you're going through the looking glass like in um, Midsummer. I don't know if you ever have you seen Midsummer yet. yet, but there's a, there's a shot where. It's kind of like a, a, I read it as like it's a through the looking glass moment. Like you're entering the twilight zone. You're entering the right. the weird space where the bad stuff's going to start to happen, where 
the normal rules of reality don't apply and that's right. that's when the camera goes upside down um for one shot um so this is the opening sequence right uh establishing like landscape shots for here it just seems unsettling like things aren't going to be what you expect you know the the town's going to get turned upside down whatever mm-hmm. um but on second viewing with the trees being upside down and right side up i was seeing fangs i was seeing mm. it was like a a, a, a teeth a sharpened it's these pine and fir trees these uh conifers and it, it i don't know just uh that kind of had a fang motif to it. I didn't know if that's what was hmm. going for, but that's what I was getting from it. Yeah, no, that's what's awesome. I, I've, I'm going to have to look at that again for that. But I, I just generally, I mean, yeah, it is an inverted world. Uh, everything's upside down. But like it was, wasn't so disorienting as it was unsettling because it was so still. The drone shots were gorgeous and very, very well done. And like just, it was just so unsettling. And it's one of those choices that you just have to wonder, like, is that in the script or do they just find that in the editing room? Like, where does mm. that, where does that come from? And it's not, when I say the town gets turned upside down, this isn't a story about, like, this isn't like Twin Peaks. Like, oh, the peaceful right. community that was not expecting these grisly murders and right. nobody, it's a, it's ripped a scab off of the the peaceful veneer that everyone thought existed here like it's not that's that's not really no. what the story is you know which is good yeah because no, it didn't uh, need to be that right no it's just a very personal one so then we it gives to the way to the full moon uh which then dissolves to the interior of the cabin paul carnery's uh rental presumably airbnb cabin which the first thing you see is just chock full of taxidermied animals yeah big ones too which does lead me to believe the police are really bad because if they were looking for someone who could skin an elk and they didn't see that the person who owned the cabin had skinned many (laughs) (laughs) that seemed like maybe something anyway but what i love about this opening scene i'll I'll return to that i'll return to that uh, what i love okay what i love about this opening scene is that it fits the genre you're expecting. A hot young couple comes in and meets a tragic end to kick off your story. But get some sexy times. Right. But yeah. horror movies have sadly devolved into introducing like a string of unpleasant characters so you'll like it when they're killed off. And I've been watching a lot of older ones lately and kind of seeing how much and, and like Poseidon Adventure, like, you know, when you have so much pipe laid to make you identify and like the characters and then they just get rid of them. Um, and it's, it's disturbing. Um, and so what this does return to that lost tool of making characters, you kind of defy your expectation and and kind of make you care about so that their deaths kind of mean something instead of a, a cheer death. And the casting of Jimmy uh, Tatro, I don't know if that's how you say his name, proves to be like a stroke of genius because when he appears and his initial lines of dialogues are very bro-ish. He was, I'm expecting him to be the entitled douchebags that we love to see get hacked up by killers. Uh, and then in just a few short scenes following that kind of bro-ish intro, he defies every expectation. You know, he's ragingly uh, sensitive about gay bashing. He's willing to throw down because of it. He's nervous about proposing. And he's utterly crushed by her murder and the devastation of what the rest of his whole life. 
and which is so not what I expected when I first saw him. <laughs> I do like how they uh, how he's set up as you know, a big beefy guy mm-hmm. who's not afraid of confrontation, mm-hmm. can slam a chopstick through a cork <laughs> with his hand without the chopstick going through his hand. Yeah, I don't know how that was possible. It's <laughs> pretty amazing. Like okay, so he's got hands made of granite. Uh, guy looks like he can handle himself. <laughs> but uh, we're going to find out how much he's relying on his mom. Yeah. Later, which um, I find curious. But yeah, I, 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 that confrontation in, is that Bonanza's? Um, Might be, actually. Where little um, Jeff Fahey kind of... <laughs> Like crazy rat guy, yeah. Um, with the wild eyes, you don't. I don't care how big you are. You don't mess with the wild-eyed guy, right? No, you don't you mess don't. with the Charlie Manson. You know, he eyes was really guy. good. I liked his little like shake off he had, like when he was like, "Oh yeah, I better not. I'll just leave." You know, that kind of. I was like, "I'll get him later." I'll that get, was yeah, exactly. No, 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 yeah, no. I don't. Get... I don't need to do this now. I'll get. I'll, I'll settle this score. Right. The... And I also love that the guy he's with is super tall and never focused on. So when they keep saying they're looking for a tall guy and then they're kind of setting up this little scrappy dude, wild-eyed guy as being a yeah, potential red suspect. red herring number one. Red herring yeah. number one. Then you got red herring number two right behind him who's out tall of focus, and out of focus. The entire and never... scene. Yeah. But he's also the one who's engaging him. All right, what's your, what's your question? Is it a rude question? Right. You know, is it right? The other guy's not talking. <laughs> so I was like, this is all very masterful. What they're he's laying all these little ones. I love that. Yeah, agreed. That's a great scene. It was just that one word. Just that one word. Yeah, it's great. Tiffany Haddish in the oath had her one word. Oh, <laughs> guy, right. This guy has his one word. It's probably haddish. I don't know why I said Hadish. And then he has to look under the car afterwards to make sure that they haven't fucked with it, you know, because he couldn't keep his mouth shut. I guess that's what. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. That's like one of those shots that's so out of context. I didn't even I don't even know if that shot even registered with me the first time I saw the movie, like what was happening right then. Right. Okay, But he checks under the car. Mm -hmm. Another full moon shot over the restaurant. To establish, mm-hmm. you know, remember Wolf's in the title of this movie, folks. Full moon. <laughs> That's what's happening. Mm-hmm. They get back to the cabin. No knives in the kitchen. Right. That was a nice touch. <laughs> uh, no, nor corkscrew. When he chopsticks the uh, cork spilled, red wine is spilled everywhere. Mm-hmm. Which at first, like, is that blood from his hand? Right. But uh, we're all just getting warmed up here, folks. We're getting warmed up. Just yeah. like a hot tub's going to warm them up. And you think then there's going to be, okay, here's the sexy time, but it actually is a true romantic evening that could kick off an entire life together. Yeah, it's pretty you know? sweet. Pretty sweet. And I do love that when she's murdered by the quote-unquote werewolf, right when you assume she's being attacked, when she's turned off the wrong hot water valve. Right. And then um, he yelps in the shower. What's he doing? He's shaving. He's shaving like like prepping for sex, but it's still like his balls. Yeah. He's like, but like, he's like, he's an anti werewolf. Exactly. He's it's the removal of hair. So they're still kind of doing this kind of like, I'm hiding the duality of man. That is the werewolf. You know, it's still all these little things. I just love it. And this is the point 
by the way, where uh, Siggy's dog Nugget starts barking, right? Because the, the, when he comes out of the shower, uh, you hear all these dogs barking, and I, I assume your dog just started going nuts. So I have a complaint, um, is that I've been seeing a lot of movies lately where for mood, in Thunder Road included, at the mall parking lot scene, where to add a little tension, sound designer puts barking dogs in the background. Unmotivated barking dogs. <laughs> And I just want you to know if you're if you're doing sound design for a movie and you do that, you must not want me to hear the next three minutes of dialogue because my dog is just going to go nuts <laughs> and jump up barking and then run upstairs to bark some more. And then I'm usually watching these movies when everybody else is asleep. I got to run upstairs, grab the dog, bring it back down. It's a whole mess. Anyway, well, one is, sound designers usually assume that you didn't bring your dog to the theater, but. You also got to realize that it, that's not where the movie's life ends. I, yeah, I, okay, fair point, fair point. Um, yeah, uh, current economic and uh, epidemiology, not epidemiology, yeah, epidemiology, realities um, notwithstanding, you should prioritize <laughs> the cinematic experience. Nonetheless, um, so I was all prepared on rewatching this to not be able to hear half the movie. I already had the closed captions on. I'd already seen it once. <laughs> Dog is asleep with me on the couch, sleeps through this whole entire fucking movie. With all growls I don't know and how. snarls. Yeah. Every, every, every werewolf attack scene, dog doesn't flap a floppy ear. And <laughs> no, there's no accounting for it. So then once we get the paw moon in the paw, bloody paw puddle, we now get our intro of our lead character, John Marshall, who rises into frame Quite like the the killer does later. Oh yeah, he, good call. He rises into frame. Uh, it's very the whole movie's very well thought out. Just I I can't. I'm sure there's lightning in a bottle stuff, but and coincidences. But they found him and they used him. If that's true, that's what it was. But they really thought this stuff out. Um, I got drunk for the first time when I was 15 years old. I turned to the kid next to me, I guess, and I said, "This is what normal people must feel like." What an amazing line. <laughs> I love that. I, I had, when I heard that, I paused it and I just had to say, wow, like 15 times. <laughs> and then came back to it. Because that, that shows you the deep insecurity that he has at, at the core of himself that, mm. uh, that he's had since forever. Yeah. That, like well, everyone else has got everything figured out. And as soon as he has this alcohol, all you know, you could look at it several different ways. The way I looked at it the first time, which is not the necessarily the right way, was that all the fears and neuroses kind of subsided, and he didn't have them. And then he's like, "Oh, this is how normal people feel without all." It this. was the, the at at the top when you asked what the movie's about. The thing I didn't read from my notes is that both of his movies are about not knowing how to be. Right. And that's what that line is all well, about. Yeah, Thunder oh, Road that nails it. That Thunder Road uh, opening monologue is just—I I, don't—I don't—I can't be here. I, I, should I—should I keep? Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know how to. It's fantastic. Yeah. And then he—and then he follows it up right with, "I'm not good with anger." There's the movie. Right. <laughs> right there. Right. That's what it's about. States it right up front. There's a line here about uh, how the monster comes out when he drinks and the monster comes out too. It's like, yeah. 
Oh yeah. yeah. Thesis statement for the movie. <laughs> now sit back and enjoy the ride. Exactly. Yeah. Which I, I'm totally on board with that approach, by the way, because I think it's saying more than all that. But yeah. No, oh yeah, completely. Ahead. It's saying more than all that. And sometimes you could say that that's heavy-handed. I didn't find this heavy-handed in the slightest. No, he me neither. States it all out. Here's the movie, because he even says, um, uh, <laughs> uh, "I'm living proof that if you can just focus." And then the commotion going off there. You know, he's like, <laughs> "But if you don't just let the monster out," and that beautiful double meaning. When uh, he's uh, he's got his walkie out and it's the the AA leader goes, "What's the problem?" And he's like, "I don't hear people," which is oh yeah, it's yeah. just it's such a beautiful like I think I watched this scene like four times the first time I saw it and just watching it over and over again because it, it's kind of like the it's a it's a mostly another one shot like Thunder Road only it's pulling out instead of pushing in. Yeah. for 18 minutes and it's a lot tr- more truncated but the but that's just so great because not only yeah that's the scary part when the police station is empty and you're like i don't hear people but also that's his problem i don't hear people <laughs> <laughs> that's anybody's problem when they're covered in their own insecurity and and, and impotence and, and and rage um and also let me just say how funny it is i think to have uh, uh an alcoholics anonymous in a small town i'm from a very small town Everyone knows each other, so you know everyone <laughs> in there. Yeah. And so, you know, that comes up a lot, a, lot, a lot later, like when he's talking to the reporter. He's like, yeah, see you later in the basement, Ricky. <laughs> 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 Love that scene. Love that scene so much. This movie's just full of great scenes. It really is that uh, my ex-wife, oh, Wolf, yeah, you've met her. I uh, I wouldn't say a crossword about her, but uh, she could be a real fucking piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, and half of this scene is like re restating things from Thunder Road. Yeah, kind of a little bit. It's just, it's just like taking the same dice and re-rolling them in a way. It's like uh, I don't know, but I loved it. I, I yeah, I felt the it's same. sort of like uh, yeah, we're gonna rehash Thunder Road a little bit, but we're gonna do some different stuff too. So yeah. Stick around. I mean, I, I looked at it the same way I looked at it. Uh, I really like the album um, Lord Huron's Strange Trails. And um, there was three songs I really loved, and then I <laughs> quickly realized they were basically the same song, <laughs> uh, either slowed down, sped up, and had similar lines. And I'm like, well, this guy revisits the same song. Like, it doesn't feel like a hack, like rehash. It's just... I'm revisiting this and we're, yeah, this is, these are the variations of it. And right. we're going to um, look at different facets of this jewel. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. I immediately loved it more because of that. It's so like I, our friend, Mike, um, when he was preparing an album told me, I accidentally wrote two songs that have the, not only the same chord structure, but the same exact melody, <laughs> right. but I'm keeping it. Cause I think they both work and they do. They do. Yeah, Exactly. That's beautiful. So then we go to the crime scene. Now we meet uh, J- Officer Julia Robson by Rick, the great Ricky Lindholm. Yes, our second Ricky Lindholm movie. That's right. After uh, Under the Silver Lake. And this is a like 180 degree from her Knives Out role. Right. <laughs> right. And it's funny uh, that we didn't do Knives Out. Yeah, anyway. it is funny that we didn't do Knives Out. That seems to be right up our alley. Um, and so, and then we also meet the late. 
great, masterful Robert Forrester as sheriff, who, who's known Sheriff Hadley, but his son is John Marshall. Haven't figured that out yet. Mm. And uh, uh, Robert Forrester in his, in his final role. Good as always. As great as always. Yeah, always. Um, we also meet the killer here, which we can just fly out and say now. Again, please watch the movie. We don't want to spoil anything. We want to discuss it. He is the angry pickup truck driver at the roadblock. Who is head above everyone else, but you're assuming he's standing on like the renter board of his truck. Like he's kind of perched out out of it, you know. And sporting facial hair that he will not have when we are called upon to recognize him from earlier in the movie. So... Yeah. I did not make this connection at all until the second time I saw the movie. I'm like, oh, wait, that's the guy. But right. I was <laughs> really? so yeah. I I really lacked confidence that even the second time. So I'm like, is that the same guy? Am I supposed to reckon? He's got a small head for a tall guy. He's got a right. He's got a little head. Is uh, that him? Yeah. It's just like. And now I didn't even make the connection with the stuffed animals in the cabin is because I think cabins have that. hunting trophies, but uh, he's a taxidermy guy. Now yeah. that didn't throw that. I didn't have that same problem, but there was a lot of stuff that I didn't necessarily pick up until the second viewing that I was like, how were we supposed to get that? <laughs> and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But like you were supposed to love the movie so much that you bought it immediately, right. sight unseen, but, and watched it six times. Right. But the the thing is, is that he's got all the elements there. But why that didn't f- feel like a letdown in any way to me is that it wasn't really about a whodunit, really. I don't think. Well, we're not. I didn't mean to jump us to oh, the end. Sorry. We're uh, we're in scene. Right. Right. Four. Right. right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm hard, This is new to me. <laughs> So um, we meet the killer here who, who complains about, um, he goes, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? Rent this out as a haunted house? My wife's going to fucking kill me. So he mentions his wife. He's blaming yeah, He's blaming his, the police for the fact that a crime occurred here. He's blaming the police <laughs> and he's blaming his wife for grief he's going to get. Okay. So, every, well. Oh, wait. So he's married at this point. No, he, that's just it. He's. He throughout the movie, the times we see them, he references his wife. Every scene he's in, he references his wife. Ah, okay. Well, that's going to answer my big question at the end. <laughs> but there's another question that I have regarding that. There's still questions. Maybe. Then we see uh, we meet Officer Bo, Officer Gutierrez, and I, <laughs> in a moment I love. Excuse me, are my dogs going to be okay? Lady, your dog? You said there was a chemical spill? I did say there was a chemical spill. <laughs> your dog's going to be fine. And I think, I think I just noticed right before the show that I think she might be the person who works at the office that they later go get the voicemail message from. I, it might be the same person. I don't know. Mm. But yeah, I, I thought it was really funny. I, I did say there was a chemical and then we go, you know, uh, we, we see that, um, you know, the sheriff has to be helped just to move and to get around and that they are kind of shielding it and kind of hiding it from everybody else. And yeah. um, we see also that this is not... Because he can't admit he's getting old. He can't admit he's getting old. He can't admit that he might 
his body might not be able to take it. And then is expressed by the fact that the young officers are having trouble processing this because this is new, you know, and everyone's saying, please just go to the woman to talk to her about it. Talk to Officer Robson. Talk to her because I'm, I'm processing this over here. She's, she's got it together. I, I can't. I can't tell you. So then we go to outside the police department where Sheriff and John talk to Ricky, the town reporter, where we get the connection that this is the Ricky that he's always talking to off scene. <laughs> and uh, inside the office, now we see he's in decline. And, and this, is, this is where John Marshall becomes interesting. And I think why I was kind of more blind to some of the more obvious things on the first screening for him because he has, I wouldn't call it integrity, but he certainly has intent to have the police department be better than they are. And he's frustrated when he's, when he's basically yelling, be better, and no one complies. And instead of going, changing his leadership style, because he has none, <laughs> he just gets angrier. But it's nice to see him things like, it's, not, it's another murder. It's nothing new. Treat it like a murder. That's it. And every time, every time someone mentions a werewolf, there's the way he seethes. <laughs> <laughs> because you can identify with that, like... I identify with that because it's around me a lot in my corporate environment where you're just like, you're still on that. <laughs> so you identify with it, but you also know there's a better way. Uh, Forrester killed me with when he, at the end of that scene where he's like, oh my God, 11 emails on this already. Jesus Christ, this is worse than my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Like this this yeah, mutilation of a, of a tourist is just as horrific as having to respond to birthday emails. Just this now, I like to think I like to think that Robert Forster was the strong, silent type. Now, there's yeah. two ways to read this scene to me. One is the Robert Forster character is like neurotic in the same ways that his son is neurotic and unwilling to face stubborn. I'm willing to face stuff. Yeah. But I wouldn't say neurotic really, but he's unwilling. Well, to face not it. neurotic, but like um, he, he gets flustered. Like if things aren't going the way he wants, he lashes out and, and gets frustrated easily at the crime scene. Like, Whoa, Whoa, mm -hmm. what's going on? You could tell me, you know, they have to shuttle him off because he's, he can't really handle the situation. Could it be that he like has the same emotional um, fragility that uh, John had, or is it just the age like catching up to him? Like he, because I was reading it as he used to be able to hide it, and now it's just age has caught up with them. Like the email line is about being an old person and technology, right? More than he he freaks out the way that we see John freak out like on, on a regular basis and always has. Right. You know what? I'm going to agree with you now because before I was going to say, no, I think he was just his age getting to him and it scares him. But the first thing he says after shut the door, he goes, do you think they noticed? Yeah. So he's definitely used to hiding. He's, you know, the, the manhunt scene where he gives the pep talk, like that's <laughs> just great. That's what he used to always be able to be in public, like in front of other people. And it's just with age and weakness, he's not able to, to maintain that facade anymore. Yeah. And he, and he can't accept the fact that he can't do it anymore. Right. And he can't, he's 
he is not fulfilling his expectations of himself, um, of the, the younger version of himself. Yeah. It's really, yeah. really great. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very nice. It's like, take the same character move him a generation back and like shift him 45 degrees, but he's the same. Yeah. <laughs> starting from the same origin. Same point. cloth. Right. Yeah. Then we move to, uh, officer Robson, uh, interviewing the little guy and the big guy from the, from bonanzas or from the bar. Um, I love little moments of this whole exchange, like where he changes the slur to asshole. Right. Don't swipe left on my phone and how he suddenly turns on her. Uh, uh, and then after she walks away, calls her a bitch when she's two steps away. And he's already right. like, yeah, fucking bitch. And you're like, God. And then she goes home and looks at the crime scenes uh, photos while eating ramen, which this is, I, I've, the, it shows her steel and her resolve and her uh, uh, job dedication uh, but also could be a little bit of a red herring too in, in the fact that she's, this doesn't bother her, right? I also like that the local paper headline headline reads, a massacre, just what they told him not to say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the picture is of the sheriff's back and John's facing the camera. So it's kind of like, who's, um, it was a nice touch. Uh, then we come into a really important scene. We're back in the cafe or Bonanza's or whatever. We'll just call it Bonanza's, I guess. Uh, where John and the three other officers, Gutierrez, Chavez, and Bo, go over the case in the diner booth. Mm -hmm. It's notable that Officer Robson is not there. Right. You got just the men talking. She's doing her own work at home at that point, and all the men are there. And this scene is great in that, like the rest of the movie, every single moment is infused with a casual, an inferred, or sometimes direct misogyny. Every line, the frustration these men have that they attribute to their wives or the women in general. And it shows John's frustration with his department's laziness, disengagement, and incompetence, setting us up for sympathy. But then whenever he feels impotent and he can't change them, you know, he does his little eye roll and his simmering, you know, uh, monster that he's trying to quell. Yeah. But this comes up with those great little moments like... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you want someone to, you want people to stop talking shit about the police? Do better police work. And you go, somebody's going to handle this. Don't say somebody. <laughs> this is what I feel like all the time at my job. Don't say somebody. That somebody is us. But when you say somebody, that means nobody. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you brought up uh, one of the two lines in this movie that's about this is why people don't like the police. Right. You know, you want people to stop talking about shit about the police, do better police work. Yeah. I have problems with those two lines. Oh, yeah. Because that's not what people complain about the police. That's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But that's like, from their perspective. They're like, well, we need to like, they don't think we're not doing our job well. We need to just do our job better. When it's like, actually, you need to have a different job, <laughs> different focus to your job. Yeah. Um, people weren't protesting in the streets uh, over the summer because police are not investigating <laughs> with enough that's fervor. True. That's true. Their investigative techniques are subpar. They should solve crimes faster. <laughs> like that's not what. Right. That's not what the complaints were concerning. That's very true. Um, apart from those, that, that obvious uh, clarity, I, I like the little digs 
that Gutierrez can't say, you know, they remove her, her, her parts. And then later John is saying, okay, so take her on the back. He then removes her vagina. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a grown up. <laughs> so this shows his management lack of style is that he's trying to undermine. He's trying to say, fall in line with me because you're stupid, which always works. <laughs> <laughs> But this, those are those little moments like, like Peter Parker letting the robber go in Spider-Man and saying, hey, I thought I'd know where that was my problem. You know, where's that my problem? You're like, yeah, you go get him. And then you're like, oh, boy. We're all Uncle Ben. But even if, even if Gutierrez was right, I think John Marshall still wouldn't let the FBI handle it because he feels like he should be able to. He should be able right? to. He should be able to do yeah. this. This thing that's never occurred ever in this town. To this degree, yeah. he should be able to handle it. Now, there's some choice moments here. I mean, every little bit is, you know, every line is like, why the hell did you let me get married? I told you not to. And he shows his ring. We all told you not to. <laughs> and then John says, can't even he joins in and says, can't be married and focus on your career. Blame, 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 blame. And even he goes, you know, he says that Jap, what's that Japanese shit on the front lawn? It's a rock garden. You never see <laughs> rock garden and they all laugh and then Gutierrez brushes up the la the the ridicule away by saying I can't even think I still like a ring in the air by the, my wife chewing me out like he's still everybody is just it's it's the woman's fault it's women's fault and then uh when they show the the files from the uh he lays out some files uh they would show like the little guy from the bar but behind that on the other side of the screen, there's a printout of the Airbnb page of, for the cabin, and it's got a picture of the killer, Paul Carnery, there. And next to uh, his picture is presumably the, the logline or name of the cabin, and it's called The Heart of Snow Hollow. Really? Yeah, it's right there. It's almost like a big arrow going, it's this guy. <laughs> <laughs> But like uh, the heart of Snow Hollow, it's very much close to the title. Um, John kind of shows his suggests that he's a little more willing to think in the manner of a killer than than the other officers. When you know, why did he take the parts off of her to make it look like a serial? But yeah, why did he take the parts off her? <laughs> and then he offers all this stuff, and everyone's like freaked out that he's actually thinking about this. But he's a police officer; he should be. But it's in this scene that we get the first shot of the microwave. The first shot right. of, I love this. I, I love this motif because Gutierrez rallies the other officers against him. Like he's been yelling at him the whole time to say, you've got to fall in line with me. And Gutierrez basically gets everybody against him and he can't break that. And he simmers and his little, does his little eye roll. And then you've got the shot of the microwave that we don't know what it is at first, but he's, right. that's what's going to make or this the, go the cupboard. away. The cupboard above the, the microwave. cupboard above the microwave. Yeah. Really, really cool. Mine's the, above my fridge. The, <laughs> the alcohol cupboard. <laughs> well, now we know what to cut to. But this this really gets at it's the impotence, it's the powerlessness that thrive, fuels that rage. And um, and that he sees that dark place in his kitchen as the answer to combat this powerlessness. Um, yeah, it's so. escape. Then we go to the ski slope. We meet Hannah, the next victim. And this is a great setup for uh, the next horror victim, uh, the ski slope, the ski instructor. Yeah, a lot of great 
details in the scene. It's it's so lean. There's not much there. There's no fat. This whole movie has no fat. Do you know it comes in at like an hour and 26 minutes? It's less than 90 minutes long. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it moves super fast. It, moves, it's, yeah. it goes at a brisk pace. It takes its time, and yet it jam-packs in so much that you feel like you've got more than a full meal. It's, it's so impressive. And this is a good example of that and a good example of independent filmmaking in general because never at any point in this movie did I feel like, oh, this is what they're doing because they don't have enough money. I didn't feel that once. Mm. Um, it had the, some earmarks of it, maybe you could tell, but it never felt like they didn't have what they needed. And Duct tape on her ski boot might have been a sign that they couldn't afford to just buy a new ski boot, but that's my favorite <laughs> detail of the scene. <laughs> Like I would get a close-up of the yeah. duct tape on her ski boot. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't just anything. hey, she's so a people, human person who has lived a life before she gets killed. Right, know? exactly. And and then she she sets up that she's someone who's in, who can lead a class, take charge, and stand up for himself with a withering put down while still sounding encouraging. So, and 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 that that scene never like this is that kind of scene where it's like. They may have shot a wider shot with a whole bunch of people standing around her and paid a bunch of people to be her class, but they didn't need to, and it didn't feel no. like we were missing them. No. Yeah, don't give us the shot reverse shot. You don't yeah. need it. We don't need it's, it. The scene's about her. Scene's yeah. about her. And then she, we see her then later in the lodge telling a story and then seeing someone that frightens her, which does make me kind of wonder... I was wondering then if the person that she was going to go see was, but they call him Josh. And so I was going, is this, is the killer Josh? <laughs> like, like, is she going to go see, see the killer? But they had that great exchange with her friend. Yeah. No, the, the, I mean, one of the themes of this movie is the world is full of these people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I thought we were done with it. The him. world is full of threat from aggressive men. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I thought we were done with this. I thought we were done with him. I mean, me too. I get it. I don't know what you want me to say. That you're not going to hang out with guys that treat you badly. And then she goes, well, that'd be nice. And she turns anger now back at her. Well, that'd be nice. Yeah, how about next time I let you choose the one boy in town who likes me? And he calls her he calls her a boy, which I found interesting. Eh, ladies do that. Um, That was really sad. <laughs> that hurt my heart. That scene. Yeah. Now, now we come to our first on-screen attack that we get. The parking lot. And here's where the editing really takes off to show how awesome it is. Um, and I realized that when I was writing these notes, I realized that it was kind of like the aforementioned uh, out-of-sight sex scene I brought up last episode that I love so much. You know, that's like it's cross-cutting between the the seduction and then the we've already passed the suggestion and we're seduction and we're already going for it. It's like the wolf, the wolf, um, and then the wolf reveals almost like uh, Knives Out's uh, early reveal of the whodunit. You know, in a way, it's like they show this. I'm just, I'm, I'm just amazed. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's you, it's stunning because it's we stunning. have, you know, we haven't really talked about. Um, the debate over is this a wolf or is this a man right. among the cops, right? And 
uh, you're supposed to think, oh, these stupid cops, they, uh, or this, this John Marshall uh, is so, has too much pride, he won't accept the fact that it's a, a wolf. Yeah. <laughs> or is it a red herring? And then, you, you know, is this a question that we're going to have for the rest of the movie? But right here, we see the wolf. Like, yeah. Oh, it's a werewolf. And it like is a breathtaking reveal. It's got the legs that bend the wrong way. Like that's a that's a wolf. Yeah, he that's like the way person. he just stands up and it's like, yeah, that's that's that blew my mind when I saw it. Yeah, and then rips off an entire arm. Yeah. Like, oh. I mean, it does the the coy thing first. It plays with you for a little bit. You see it's like silhouette or it's hair kind of backlit by the moon and by the street mm-hmm. lamp and blah blah blah. But then at the end, you know, when they show that that him rising up after tearing that arm off. Yeah. Oh, um, it just catches you off guard because you just really just don't expect it to be revealed that quickly. Exactly. I, th- I thought, well, they're going to play coy with us for a little while. Right. And yeah, then no, yeah. no, they are not. And then, um, and then my mind kind of breaks in half because I was kind of getting the impression that, yeah, it's, it's a guy. It's not a wolf because everyone who thinks it's a wolf is an idiot. At the, to- <laughs> You know, right, and I'm with right. our hero who is also who's not an idiot, but he's he's not all together, you know. And so what's great about this is that that we start to think where there's there's no attack in this movie except for the very last struggle in the movie that isn't interspersed with everything that came after it. Right. It's not just they, they start the attack and then it's cross cut with the next day with John talking to his ex-wife and daughter. Right. And how he's simmering with rage. And I'm I'm a little torn on the on the on the portrayal of the ex-wife just because it seems like they're stacking the deck in his favor a little bit. <laughs> but then again, if he was a drunk through the whole marriage, then yeah, she would completely be warranted an act in, <laughs> in those responses. We get John being both aggressive and then impotent at his aggression at not working and uh, simmering with rage and then cross cut with Hannah being torn limb from literally limb from limb. Um, and do you think the scene was written that way with the intercutting? I don't know because I don't. Because I can imagine it working the other way. I mean, it seemed like a, a scene that would work great without being intercut with the attack. You mean you mean just like having the attack and then cutting to that afterwards? Yeah, because Bo runs scene. in at the end and has that wonderful moment of "Hey, what?" Mm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> knowing then, exactly knowing what that means. I I feel like I've been trying to think. I've been thinking about it, and I think that moment still works, even if it works better. I mean, I, right. I think that I think it's the right decision to intercut the two scenes. I think it's brilliant, but it. I I just don't know if it's written that way because I could see it. Right. I could see it working the other way. Yeah. I mean, it certainly mirrors because the movie is all laying groundwork to be to make you question: Is John the werewolf? And so, if every time he's feeling stress, you're either cut to the alcohol cabinet or a murder. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that that next scene when John's on the crime scene and it's uh, it's a one shot pretty much of uh, it's a one shot of John's meltdown in front of everybody because yeah, the parking he, lot in the parking lot 
um, with uh, all the people. Like, I love it that I I completely empathize with his stress and the idiocy of the people around him. But at, <laughs> except for Robson, but um, at the same time, it's also like most of it is stuff he brought on himself. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but I also love the score in this scene. Remember yeah. the score? It's relentless and comical and also like just a dominating like march almost like it's forcing you al- him along through all this. And yet it's also really it, it adds to the humor too. Vroom, 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 it's the kind of score vroom. I yeah. usually don't like. Yeah, I usually hate to be it. To honest, but I thought it really worked in this scene. Not all of you talk to me at once. And it has my favorite li- one of my favorite lines in it too. They're saying it's a wolf. No, it's a man. When do I get to be right about something? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those things where <laughs> if it wasn't in the scene, like with ten people talking about once, it would be stupid. Like yeah. it's a it's like a bear mandible. And then like over the phone they work out in the course of the phone conversation, no, it's a wolf. Like they've right. recalculated their measurement. And now yeah. they decided, no, it's not a bear, it's a wolf. Like, that, that would be dumb if it was just you watching them have the phone conversation. But because it's it cuts back and forth, it's it's comical, and it it's, uh, it just works really great. Yeah. This scene also has a great beat where he's mad about the TV van being there, and then he just turns back to them, and you see the window go up. Yeah. <laughs> power window. It's, they say it's a wolf. Yeah. <laughs> Bo, why don't you come over here? <laughs> and this is the this is his, the, this equates to the the AA meeting. This is where the monster comes out. Yeah. Because then he assaults his officer <laughs> for being an idiot. <laughs> and then all that is then cross cut with something else, where we start cross cutting with Han, with with uh, Hannah's funeral. And then we see the microwave again. This is the second time we've seen it. And then it comes back to John's assaulting Bo. And, and shoving him into a into the of uh, snowbank, yeah, and then going to John getting screamed at by a mourner. Uh, he was great that actor um, who was screaming at him at the funeral. Don't be sorry. Find it. Find yeah, he looked that. really familiar. He looked, I was trying to place him, and I don't know where he's from. And then after all that, then you're then uh, John's watching his police department get bashed on the news. And that's now when we see what the microwave actually is. This is alcohol stash. You know, it's just all that just piles on. All that, you know. Her top is gone. Her what? Her her head. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't usually call that a top. It sounded very John Mulaney, actually. <laughs> it's like, after that, then we go to the gro- we see the exterior of the grocery store where Robson uses the old velvet hammer to the guy hanging the sign to get him to take down the reference to the Wolfman. Um, we show that she's able to do that with a plum, um, and she's also responsible. She's, but at the same time, she's the one responsible for getting Bo's peace offering to because she's holding it. She's holding like what Bo is going to give to. John, and well, then she gives it to him because he's not mad at her, you know. Right, she's, right. If Bo gives it to her, he'll reject it outright. She yeah, but she's apparently she... also brought it to the station. Like she probably procured it, picked it out, and is she's now giving to, it. 
yeah, she's trying to smooth things over. She's uh, trying to be a peacemaker. Yeah. Not working out. Didn't work out that way. This has the great, uh, the great line. <laughs> Tara says he's got a hangover. Oh yeah. Like what'd you say? He's like, yeah. I said you have anger issues. <laughs> <laughs> Both true. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. It isn't like he says, "Oh, you've something. got a nice tie on today." It's like, no, you've right. got something worse. Yeah, it does actually both rhymes and uh, is yeah. as thematically relevant, if not more. I love the exchange of just, no, it's a wolf or a werewolf. You know, I've been watching a lot of History Channel lately. <laughs> <laughs> no, Chavez, it's a, no, wait, so, sorry, hang on. Let me make one thing perfectly clear. There's no such things as werewolves. They're imaginary. Our killer is a man, and I'm going to find him, and I'm going to kick, and we're, we're going to bring him to justice together. <laughs> so great fucking great. Perfect performance there by Jim Cummings. Perfect. <laughs> Legally and together. <laughs> and, then, and then we get this really important moment where, you know, the sheriff pulls him out and tries to encourage him to lead, you know. He's not... He's not leading, and of course John's not having it. And then at that moment, the sheriff looks to Robson, who's sitting there, who is obviously the better successor. And then when she gets up, she proves it once again by like inviting everybody in with humor and graciousness and then laying out the serious stuff and then invites them all to take it seriously in a way that they'll take it. And they do. You know, they get up, they listen, they invite they examine the photos. And she's yeah. obviously the better. She's all about yeah. competence. I mean, that's what the ramen, while looking at the crime scene photos, right. just said to me is that she just takes her job seriously. She like she's seriously. unflappable. And that's and that that's the great part is she takes it seriously. She does it well. And John is really just obsessed with it. Like that's what he brings to it. <laughs> Although we'll find out he's yeah. good at his job too. Uh, Somewhat, uh, his yeah. instincts are. Correct. Yes, interesting. Solving correct. this mystery throughout the entire thing, but there's more to it than that. It's like, do you want Dirty Harry? Not that he's Dirty Harry, but do you want Dirty Harry to really be in charge of everything? No. Right. No. <laughs> That's not uh, his strength, right? So can uh, so this scene? <clears throat> let's let's talk about Ricky Lindholm as an actor, yeah. real quick. I think she's great. She's um, a a not so secret. MVP of of the movie, absolutely. Because um, her reaction shots are like uh, are really important to a number of scenes. Yeah, uh, she she does a lot with uh, no dialogue, but then she's great with the dialogue too. Right. This is my third line of the movie, and I only have three that like just didn't land well with me. Uh, which was the they all laugh until she brings out the crime fo- scene photos. Yeah, and it was just tell me how you reacted to that, and I don't know if it's like the way it's written or the way it's delivered but like that was the one scene besides the two about this is why people are mad at cops right. which just like felt off um uh in a factual kind of way but this one like i felt like i floated out of the movie for a second like i it was a line that didn't feel like it belonged in the scene like it didn't belong in in the it wasn't seated in the world of the of the of the scene to me um i had a similar experience i justified it i guess which was basically saying like this was her invitation to 
transition everyone to seriousness. It's the way I made it work. I think that's a good read. And I, I think that's, I think that's probably what the line's trying to do. It just, but like, you're right. I did. I was thinking more about the line than about the moment. You're right. Like it's, I could see it as like a thought bubble of above her head, but <laughs> there's something about saying it out loud that just, mm. I couldn't, it just didn't work. I'm sorry to say. Hey, three out of 90 minutes. That's pretty good average. This, yeah, this, uh, I don't, I don't have many, yeah. many nits to pick with this movie. I think it's great. Just an observation. Then we move to John's house. Uh, I'm really walking through every bit <laughs> <laughs> where uh, he talks to his daughter about being safe. And this is a pretty great comedic scene of him clumsily trying to say comforting things while expressing the seriousness of the situation and stuff. Well, we talked about it earlier. But then we get a little bit more backstory about his mom. Yeah. Okay. This has one of those lines, and I wrote this down because this is, this is one of the things I just – it's this – fascinates me about this movie is it has all sorts of lines of dialogue which just seems like it should be a problem how on the nose they are yeah i can i agree like we talk about the lines that have the big red arrow like right plot point theme you know which um, i i cut a scene for a feature that i really was proud of and i showed it to you and you during the first screening you went plot point plot point plot when i went because uh, this doesn't work. <laughs> but here, they all work. I Yeah, you know? I don't know why they work. It feels like they shouldn't, but they all do. Yeah. And I think it's just because there's so much of it, and it comes at you so fast. And then yeah. it keeps peeling back another layer of the onion for you. But do you think maybe this is about your mom leaving you when you were a kid? And maybe if you catch the guy, you'll be able to prove her wrong? Which, like... That could be what the whole movie's about. No. No, I don't, frankly. And I thought we were talking yeah. about something else. Jesus Christ. <laughs> For a lesser movie, this would be a problem because that would be what the entire movie would be right. about. But that's just like one. Yeah. We didn't even know that was part of this guy's problem. Didn't and even it's know. not going to come up again that this is part of this guy's problem. But like, of course, that's like an ingredient to right. the stew of problems that this guy has. Like he, yeah. he is a big bundle of, of issues. Yeah, and it's just one more that's on there that hurts. Yeah. And, and and then I think a lot and it of helped it helped explain his father, you know, too. Yeah. It's, it's just a little, some great, like, shading on, on everything. Yeah, and again, it said so bluntly, it should be laughed as being bad, but because Jim Cummings makes it funny, too, I think that has a great bit deal to do with it. Like, it's yeah. not like... Like he's wink, turns to the camera and says, I've given you the key to John Marshall. He, <laughs> he just makes it funny. That, right. No, 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 no. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think the fact that it's just never addressed again in the movie, but it yeah. feels like it belongs there. It feels like part of the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It's, it's great writing. Yeah, yeah, I really do. Now this part. So he says, I'm going to go to work now, leaving her alone. And then we got the drive to the office with Robson and, and Marshall. And this is the moment where the beer bottle is thrown at the car. Yes. From on top of a mountain, I guess. From, on top of, from, from seemingly nowhere. Uh, again, showing her prowess and his clumsiness. But when they get out and, you know, they have that kind of lingering look at the woods. 
like where did it come from and, and if someone's really throwing something at them why are they now standing out in the open <laughs> um from this vantage point where they can't see anything um but then they they dissolve into um our first red herring for the for what was labeled as the rv killer in the script we now get our first uh red herring scene of this yeah. drug user in a trailer who has a wolf-like dog Right, so this is, uh, I think we're up to red herring number four, if you're counting right. John Marshall as a as a suspect, right. as a blackout drunk uh, werewolf. And he seems here designed to make you forget about the little short guy it, Yeah. Uh, for, for most of the remainder of the movie. But I'm also aware that I've been made to forget about him, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but this guy looks like, I'm like, some, I'm kind of aware that like, something's up with this. This is going to be our are drug-fueled, which often is a substitute for uh, lycanthropy in a lot of, um, I don't know if I said that right, for wolfism <laughs> in, in some movies that are going to do werewolf movies, but not really werewolves. So, well, But it's kinda... also the cover for when nobody will believe our hero that they're being stalked by a monster or a Terminator right. or what have you. The cops are always really like, oh, someone on PCP would... Punch right. through the windshield and not get hurt. It happens all the time. Exactly. So here's that guy. Work, work this beat long enough. You see kids on drugs. They'll do all sorts of things that look like aliens and monsters could do it. So we just see him smoking stuff off foil. And then he's got this wolf following him around in on the trailer. And that's pretty much it. Now, our uh, Robson and, uh, and John have gone to PJ's mom's house. So here's where PJ continues to PJ, be a fascinating the character. the meathead from earlier right. in the... Now we just watched. Now there's a there's a there's a continuing motif that we see coming up that I haven't quite. I think maybe it just might be there to try to just seed uh, visual tissue to make you kind of just suspect stuff because we just saw this guy breathe and inhale the smoke through the bottle end of a syringe and then exhale it out. Then we see PJ vaping and they make a very long shot of him just taking a drag on the vape and just you don't really realize he's vaping he's just suddenly exhales a ton because his hands are so big you can't see the pipe <laughs> at meaty. all <laughs> just like like he ate Channing Tatum he's just like <laughs> and uh so they're drawing like like smoke smoke this guy so I'm going like ooh, should I be concerned about him his breakdown in this actually did affect me quite a bit when he starts crying into his mom's stomach. Like, I don't want that stuff. Get it away. Yeah, I find it interesting that this this guy who was going to propose for marriage, who, who was acting at the beginning like he was ready for his own independent or codependent adult life, uh, how much he's depending on his mother, like how much he's reduced to a child by by this experience. It's like he's been... The fact that he couldn't protect his girlfriend has like emasculated him has turned him into a boy he's no longer he's not a man because he couldn't protect her and so now he has to act like a child and let his mom make all the decisions for him he even says something like i'm going back to orange county there's a clinic there for people like me like what what kind of people (laughs) you mean like like a grief group they have those everywhere (laughs) (laughs) yeah what does that mean that is a weird line Kind of, I don't know if it's another red herring or, or just something that I'm not fully getting. 
But if you have a, a, a suspicion about him, the, the last line kind of throws that into question when he says, you know, officer, if you find him, don't arrest him, shoot him, shoot him until you see the ground through his face. Right. Yeah. Like his, again, the response to a, a situation is aggression. Aggression. Right. Aggression is the the way to solve all your problems. Exactly. Unless you're a bumbling deputy, in which case <laughs> maybe bumbling is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bumbling and aggression are like the only two paths that are chosen by right. the men in this movie. Right. So then we go to the restaurant. We meet our third victim, Liz Fairchild, and her daughter. And for me, this is the scariest scene of the movie. It was very scary, very tense scene. And, and this is this actress. Uh, shoot, I forgot to. Oh look. yeah, I, I, I meant to look up her name. She's my secret MVP of the movie. Yeah, she's very good. She didn't really need the scarf in her hair for us to identify her because she was really good. I kind of felt like that was just a visual cue for us to know who was who, but didn't need Kelsey it. Edwards. Her name is Kelsey Edwards. Yes, yeah, she's fantastic in this. And um, yes, yeah, terrifying scene. The more he's asking, the more he knows, the more he... And then she's smart enough to go find out. Then we go to a um, police department where she's making the statement. Yeah, and where she's giving the one good lead among right. many bad ones. Yeah, they got her one good lead, and then they just bring in a slew of other ones, one of whom is the actual killer. <laughs> it's Paul right. Canary. Still with his facial hair. Still with his facial hair. And for the second gonna throw off. And for the Where's second time mentions his wife, saying something like, Can you at least let me call my wife? So some brief trivia about the some other people in this scene. Um, one of the townies I, who looks so much different than everyone else, I go, Is he somebody that I don't recognize? Um I've not seen these movies, but there's these two indie horror movies called 13 Cameras and 14 Cameras. And uh, one of the townies, the one who's got, I got cats at home. I got things to do. He's like the lead of those two horror movies. And apparently Jim Cummings' first credited feature acting role is in 13 Cameras. So it kind of feels like a nice little, I'm bringing you in just to, to, to do this. And um, the other, here's another connective, the you watched it wrong connection. The other townie who played the sex worker who says, you don't call it sex, you know. I don't do that. I don't even do that shit anymore. Yeah. She was both in and was a producer on Never Going Back. Oh, who is she in Never Going Back? Is she the neighbor? She was, yeah, she's the neighbor who called ah, the cops on them. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's her. And then the other one is uh, uh, PJ McCabe, who is actually uh the co-writer and co-director with jim cummings on his next movie the beta test um and he's also was an actor in 13 cameras as well so they uh, there's some history there cool uh and of course lindholm brings in another masterful reaction to i know who the snow hollow wolf man is just that <laughs> I know. exasperated but utterly welcoming just well you want to hear all about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yep. It's like working retail. She'd be a great retail yeah. worker. <laughs> <laughs> Customer service. She uh she she's got a great poker face there. Yeah. So then we go into the sheriff's office. We see he's getting a checkup from the uh ambulance driver or the coroner or some or not coroner. Uh finds out he's got a heart murder and they have a fight 
uh, uh, John and, and Sheriff Hadley have a fight about his retirement and how much stress it's on him to kind of keep this going. Is this the best scene? Is this is this Jim Cummings' best scene as an actor in this movie? This might be my favorite scene. I don't know. I don't know, but I really believe... I mean, he's fantastic in it. Um, I didn't... Uh, I didn't label it as such, but it's it's fantastic. Well, he's you know, he's with Robert Forrester. I mean, you bring <laughs> Robert Forrester, you just bring your A game with, right? But it's it's fantastic because you really believe we don't see it much in the movie, but we really believe the stress that's on of like we're doing this facade of that our sheriff is still this big, strong John Wayne guy who, and I have to hold him up. And I, but more importantly, that moment where he says, do you know what it's like to worry about getting a call in the middle of the night that you're dead? I can't keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. The way he explodes with anger, yeah. like the, what, what you're, I can't believe what you're fucking doing to me right. <laughs> by not going to the doctor. Right? right. You're killing me. Yeah. And then, of course, after that, uh, during that scene, his eyelid trills. He's fighting that monster inside and then it cuts to the moon. <laughs> and then we have the Liz Fairchild attack. And then this even more ambitious cross-cutting event between Liz, the, the Liz Fairchild attack, uh, the, the coroner's office with John's freak out over the body, and then attack of the coroner. <laughs> Liz's funeral then adds into the mix. And then... And her daughter's funeral. That That was... I, I'm so shocked that didn't sink the movie. Like that. I know. Okay, this is like Bong Hoon Jo level. Yes. I'm so I'm ba- total mixing. Like I don't know how you can. How do you do it? Like okay, horror movies have body counts, but like this isn't their typical horror movie. No. This doesn't even feel like a horror movie for most of it. No, it doesn't. We no. have this terrifying attack with. Uh, Liz uh, from the diner who you know we came to be scared for her already right and now sympathetic because she's trying to tell the police but she's swamped by all these all the bullshit stories that they're getting at the station and so they don't take her seriously and now we're seeing her being attacked and her child we're saying that her daughter died we see the pine box the little coffin with her daughter's picture on it dead kid in a comedy montage played for laughs. Well, I wouldn't say... Intercut th- with the horrifying attack. I wouldn't say that the child's coffin's paid, played for laughs, right? I don't think you say... No, but the, the montage overall is played Right, for the laughs. attack on the on Gary, the coroner, the, uh, the everything. But then, so you got him drinking uh, in a, for, uh, alcohol snuck in in an Arizona tea bottle in the funeral. So how... Tell me how... I mean, they cut from John attacking the coroner and the wolf attack to the flung bloody car keys to the child's coffin, revealing that Miley was was killed as well. And then not like literally seconds later, seconds later, you get some actual genuine laughs out of John uh, berating Gutierrez Exactly. Uh, going, come over here. No, I want you to tell your theory. Tell me that a hunter without a license did this. I want to hear this. This is going to be great. It was yeah. a hunter without a license. You're a bad police officer. <laughs> you should have pursued computer science because you are not good at this. 
you you shouldn't have enough left in the tank to laugh you after shouldn't. seeing the coffin. So is it the little girl's coffin? Is it um, is it the fact that they gave us that afterward to make us forget about it? Because it's always a shock every time when I all six times I've saw it, I'm always like, oh yeah, the kid died. It completely. Yeah. It's always a shock, and it's an effective shock. It makes it it fuels his rage and anger even more and like how much he has to do this and how how bad it is that he's failing right yeah and then he can't rely on everyone else and, and especially that whole after the fight with gary he says i'm a father and gary says no you're not i know i know that's the most emasculating thing you can say after i'm a father <laughs> no you're not yeah, the tall town not only thinks you're a bad cop, but we all know that you're a bad father, too. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then the next scene is him with his sleepy daughter on the couch and him bringing him upstairs. And to, to the movie's credit, the next line of dialogue is her saying in her tank top, you know, saying, can you make it warmer in here? And he's had just looked over her all full of love and protection. And he says, if you want it warmer, put on a sweater. Now, I've never more a fatherly thing to say if I've ever heard it. <laughs> That's the most dad <laughs> thing you can say. <laughs> but then he begins drinking and it cross cuts with the moon. So this is where yeah. Carrie, I, I, Carrie watched it with me the last time. And um, I knew she didn't want to. But she stayed up the whole time and she didn't think she was going to. And this was the moment when I realized she was engaged because she said out loud, so he's going to be the werewolf? I know that's when she's in a movie because she's always seeing the script on the page when she's watching and she's always thinking ahead of the movie. And But most of the time, if she's got it figured out or if whatever, she's she's bored and she tunes out and goes to sleep or does something else. But when she says it out loud that she's working out where everything's going, then I know she's in it. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. And I thought, I thought dead kid was going to boot her right out. But uh, nope. It just hits you too fast. And then you're on to the next thing. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Once you hit drinking mouthwash stage. Right. I had a neighbor who... Um, Ended up dying. He lived to a, a, a nice old age, but what killed him was a, a legacy of his mouthwash and aftershave drinking phase oh, uh, of his life. Oh, man. Um, apparently. So don't do that, folks. Nope, drinking mouthwash is a bad idea, especially like half a bottle at a time. <laughs> but no, you know what? A cap full is too much. It's wash. It's not. You don't, don't drink think the I can stop water. drinking this mouthwash before I even get halfway through the bottle. <laughs> like, that's not. Set your bar higher. Exactly. So then we move to red, the red herring number four, scene number two, where this time we actually see a dead body in the pyre that he's got set to Which burn. I didn't see the first time I saw the movie. I didn't either. I didn't realize. I think maybe I did, the first, but I was like, there's so much going on. And then I thought it was like a deer or like a dead animal or something. I thought maybe I'm just it was looking a... at the guy in his tattoo. Yeah, they show he's got a wolf tattoo. Clear sign of a werewolf. <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't until later I realized, oh, there's an actual body in there. 
Then we go to another montage where John researches the origins of lycanthropy at the library. Something seems like a reasonable thing to do at this point. But he goes and he's got a stack of books waiting for him. And then they cross cut that with him info dumping what he's found to Ricky Lindholm. And then other phone calls he's made for research. And then his own hallucinations dreaming about the funeral, like reliving the funerals. And a bunch of other stuff. There's so much. These are so well thought out to the point that they cut to uh, him sneaking uh, alcohol from a flask in the library. But they overlay that in a scene where he's on the phone with someone else. And as soon as that person starts asking questions he doesn't want to answer, they overlay that scene of him drinking from the night before. Mm. And then... But you hear him saying, no, it's not about that case. It's about an arsonist who's setting fire to nosy people's automobiles. (laughs) So whenever he gets resistance, you see him drinking. It's it's really well thought out. But this is also the scene where John lays in all the things about where werewolves actually came from, about how people would see things so horrible. They go, well, it can't be a man doing this. It has to be a monster. And it's actually just men. It's men who get angry and take it out on women because they hate them. And victims are always women and the killers are always men. Why is it always women? Do you think women had to deal with this shit since the Middle Ages? <laughs> it didn't look. That's it's a, just yeah. perfection. That's Ricky Lindholm's best moment. <laughs> it, it really is. It's not my, too big. It's not too small. It's that, Goldilocks. That, that might be my favorite line of the screenplay. Just, yeah, it really... I think women have had to put up with the shit since the Middle Ages, right. like the suddenly dawning on him. Yeah. Like... It's suddenly dawning. <laughs> right. For the first time in his life. Now, in this sequence, there's so much being put at us. Um, we get his remembrances of the funeral, but now you see the ghost of Brienne standing there. You see the ghost. You see the images of, of Liz holding her child behind like yelling mourners but we also in this montage see uh i wouldn't even call it a montage i just call it a sequence you know you see john pick up a book did you notice this what book i saw him pick up several books yeah but they they bring i don't know which one you're gonna say they bring up a book taxidermy by paul canary okay i want to ask you about this yeah why 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 does he pick up a book about taxidermy i have no idea None. I cannot come up with the motivation for it. I have not either. But he picks up this pack by Paul Canary, other than the fact that he's a suspect, maybe? I don't know. But it's a thing by the guy. Uh, and But we've never heard... We've never heard Paul Canary's name attributed to that man yet. Not right. even here. We don't know it's his we name. We don't see yet. an author's photo. But we see that pages are flipped to the seam ripper. And then at that moment, the Seam Ripper is then, we assume that the book, we see the book being Xeroxed. So we assume he's doing that page, which comes up later. Unlike the Poseidon Adventure, this does come up later. (laughs) (laughs) And then we see the ghost of Miley uh, and and him pushing inside the mourner to get to them. And then instead of them being there, it's the parking lot with the dead body. And then a pretty effective jump cut of the wolf before John wakes up from falling asleep in the library to a marvelous line reading of, oh, oh, fuck you, <laughs> to the librarian. 
just, that really that tickled me to no end. Seymour <clears throat> um, does not like scary movies and did not want to watch this with me, but she was walking through. And so I said, okay, watch this scene so you can see what kind of actor Jim Cummings is. And it was the library scene. It was this scene. And she was immediately like, um, bullshit. When the librarian says he didn't know whether to wake him up, library <laughs> policy is you always wake him up. You always wake him up. <laughs> that guy is an amateur. This movie sucks. Oh, <laughs> <Aww>, Seymour. <laughs> Yeah, he wasn't having it. But uh, this had the great line, you know, if it had been another member of my team, this could have ended in a shooting, which is why people give shit to the police. Exactly. That's that's the reason. That's the it's reason. Acting out of rage right. and tantrums <laughs> instead of doing your job. It's not just that you're not doing your job. Okay. Right. Anyway, wish the movie had put that together. But I don't know. It's okay. This, this is a move. This is a kind of thing where I'm like. That's coming from the character's perspective. It's not really affecting the movie in the sense that um, it didn't seem to be something the movie was putting out. Other than the fact that they aren't very competent. <laughs> he said police work. Um, but yeah. Now this is a scene that I'm, I'm wondering if it leads anywhere. The next scene is they go into an office where... Uh, an office manager has brought them in to read to hear Liz's voicemail. Yeah, this is a weird scene. Yeah, office manager, by the way, dressed perfectly. That <laughs> that was just spot well, on. How she dressed? I don't remember. Casual. It's just like you know, you know, t- tight black slacks and then a, a blue kind of. It's 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 the equivalent. It's the female equivalent of the man's like a blue dress shirt and khakis for. It's just office wear. I don't know why it struck me so much, but I was just like, yeah, no, that's that's it. That's what the costumer nailed it. I can't say anything more than that. Um, but they listen to this voicemail of someone who keeps calling her to ask Toner about about Toner that sounds kind of weird. And uh, John hilariously rips the entire phone out of the wall <laughs> to take. And that's not how the voicemail works. Right. It's not in the phone, but uh, it was still funny. Um, it is funny. It was very funny, but uh, I don't know if it leads anywhere, and I didn't know what it added other than another because they never. I agree. I agree with you there. Yeah, we don't have a. It, this is one of a couple of things that just in going through these the this movie for the notes portion of our show, it made me realize that maybe there were scenes that or or lines that they cut. I mean, like uh, storylines that maybe they cut out because they realized they didn't need them. And were wise to do so. And this might have been one of them. Because they know... I don't know if there is a correlation between Paul Canary and his victims. Uh, yeah, I don't know why this is Paul Canary. It, it's, the payphone that this phone call comes from is near the meth trailer. And so it's going to be one of the uh, circumstantial... Right. Pieces of circumstantial evidence that's going to make them think that meth guy is the werewolf that's true i didn't put like that that's together. the only but yeah it's like that's the cog it plays but full disclosure i typically don't care very much about murder mysteries and i'm not actually trying to piece together the right the mystery as i watch them because they're not actually puzzles you're meant to solve um <laughs> right 
And so I'm not going to engage in this competition with the author right. that I cannot possibly win. And so, right. but <laughs> so I, I, don't, I, I don't tend to care too much about stuff like that. I didn't think it was supposed to be revelatory that it was this guy who did it. It, it that wasn't the point. Yeah, that yeah, wasn't like the point. Of it. Again, I did not remember yeah. that he appeared earlier in the movie when <laughs> right. we get to the end because right. he shaves his face for. Right, I don't know. That why. was weird. That was weird. I thought, why did they do that? Unless he was trying to be less wolfy. But again, by the payphone, you get Chavez just saying, "We're out here." It wouldn't make sense that they would be prints, so I'm not going to dust it. And he's and I've. I hate this. I'm going to make a confession. When he yells, do your job, do your job. I'm begging you to do your job. I have both thought that at my job and I have said that at my job. <laughs> <laughs> Once it was like, do your job. God damn it. Um, so yeah, so then we go back to the newscast. Another uh, informs of the curfew and put in place. We get another full moon. This is where we were the prep, the the, the mission prep, where we're cross cutting between what uh, uh, Sheriff Hadley's saying to do and them actually doing it, and um, giving the old pep talk that he's could have done well in the past. I won't ask you to pray for him with me because of the goddamn lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Such fun. And this, I, I, I did, I really like this, this scene with two exhausted people who were trying to take care of each other. Just, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And then his final, uh, you know, uh, you know, confesses, I can't do it. And then, so go get him. And then he just becomes that little boy comically, but also it really, you know, affected him that he's finally conceding. I, I can't, I can't go on. And then... This, I thought, was really fascinating. When he run, goes out to tell Carla, finally he's got the go-ahead. Carla, call the ambulance. Sheriff's got to go to the hospital immediately. And she immediately jumps on it. But yeah. John can't let it go. He stands there and just keeps yelling, please fucking do this for me. I can't do it. Please do it. And she's like, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> she's very sweet, but it's like she's doing it. But he can't let it go. He still can't let it go. He can't leave. It, I found that very affecting. And then what does he do? He like hesitates and says, tell him. Right. And then doesn't say anything and just leaves. Well, she's like, I got it. Go. Yeah. <laughs> you got to go. So then he goes out with the old action movie, you know, slow motion run. Okay. Which then and leads... this is my favorite transition of the movie. This is oh, my favorite yeah. moment. Vis this is my favorite visual moment of the movie. I think it's right here, right? Right. Is it... He's going out through the front door. Yeah. Camera tilts up. To the ceiling, cross dissolve into tilting up from the floor to his daughter sitting in front of the mirror, checking to see if anyone's behind her. Yeah, and then before she calls her boyfriend, right? Right. It's great. It's, what is that? What is that doing? I, I thought I had to think a yeah. lot about this, about why why that choice of the tilt up and then the the tilt up from the floor. It's very disorienting. Yeah, but it's tying the two spaces together too, in a very literal sense. So. If you're literally, he's leaving the house and his daughter's alone. But I don't know. I'm sure it's something more than that. It could have been. It, it could. Like, there's all sorts of ways you could do that. Like, you could crane up. You could just cross dissolve. You could cross cut. You could do match cut. 
like why the tilt up thing? I was thinking about it. It was like, it's not like a canted angle, but it's, for me, it's saying like he's going out. It's setting up the confrontation in the street with right. with his daughter. It's a is, fucking great scene, dude. He, yeah, he's going out to catch this thing, and he's not protecting her. Right, right. Like his perspective is off, and that he's, he thinks his job, the role as a man he has to fulfill right now, is to be the one who goes and shoots this monster, when he should be with his daughter protecting her. Right. I mean, he can. He's got to lead his team, but his mind's not with her. His mind yeah. is not with protecting her. Right. Um, I think that's what that's doing. He's leaving, and she's alone. It's a, it's tying those two actions together of like. It's those, those it's tying states. the two spaces together, but the the tilt is like showing like yeah. the, the, the the his perspective is off on this. Right. Yeah. Right. So she coaxes her boyfriend to meet her, and uh, her primping is 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 great because it reminds you just how young she really is. But the parked car attack. This scene I love so much. Mainly, it's such a great moment where. They see the neighbor on the phone, like, through the fogged windows of their heavy breathing. And Brock yeah. is like, oh, she's caught us. She's, she's calling, you know, get off, get off, she's caught. And when she looks, she realizes she's not, that what's actually being caught is way more frightening, is that she's yeah. warning them. Right. That yeah. was terrifying. That's a great moment. It's <laughs> a great moment. And then we get the surprise attack of the wolf. And... Uh, and then immediately John's He's changing his MO. Like this is, uh, hmm. as Officer Robson says, that's usually them that messes up and that's how we catch them. So is he, like, is he specifically targeting John's daughter, I wonder? I didn't even think about it. I, I had no I, idea. You know, he's been attacking lone people in isolated spots and here he's on a busy, you know, well, not busy, but densely populated uh, for snow hollow residential mm. street with two people. Uh, two people with a spectator in a bay window like it's yeah um it, you know he's changing his mo and uh it's not really clear why but this is what the they get desperate i guess if you think about it i guess it's like he's trying to go out and do this but everyone's at curfew no one's out except her and they're the only ones out maybe that's maybe it that's it Slim Pickens. Know. Slim Pickens, exactly. Uh, or he was targeting her, maybe seeing her at the house and then followed her and the boyfriend after. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, had, I actually never gave it much thought, and that's fine. But uh, all I was thinking about was how cool the werewolf looked on top of the van when Jim Cummings comes screeching around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. And then... Uh, and the way it moves when he's yeah. shooting at it. Like the way you can only getting glances of it from behind the vehicles. And then to hear dad when you're trying to shoot at a werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> the shot of her tumbling out, that the two of them, yeah. the teenagers, tumbling out of the front seat of the car, mm-hmm. out of the driver's yeah. side door. That was a great shot. It Good really was. too. It was great. It was fantastic. And then to see her standing there and Brock's just gone. Where's, where's, <laughs> where's Brock? <laughs> and then, like... He does show concern by just assessing the situation at first, but as soon as she lashes out at him for not being concerned, his unloading onto her of, God damn it, do you have any idea what your mother's going to say about me? Yeah, I was, I was wrong before. This is the best scene. Yeah. This, is, this is my favorite scene of the movie. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. It's fantastic. It all yeah. comes right there. And then he stood there uh, you waiting. Know, I'd rather be with strangers than live with you. Like, oh, what a line. Right. Oh, what a knife in the gut. Take me to the hospital. I'm bleeding from the head. And then he's standing there and he's hearing the firefight going on down the street, which is probably Gutierrez getting killed. Yeah. Dumped in a uh, trash can, which that moment I was fascinated by the fact that as soon as the officers see it, the two male officers start yelling at each other. Hmm. And Ricky Lindholm backs up to the fence and you just see the shadows of those two angry men yelling at each other. You know, <laughs> dance across her face. It's just anger. That's it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So here, so like like that, uh, you know, the, the, the protection aspect. Because then we get the hospital. You see his daughter in the hospital, Jenna, and then Sheriff Hadley, his dad. And he's angrily pacing in front with a shotgun. And then he just can't take it anymore, and he uses her thumb to open her phone to go right. find Brock. And then the next, this is another one of those. I think this is another Bong Joon Ho type scene. Uh, this is like a never going back scene. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. This is never going back. Where, where what does he even go? have tied over his face? It's like it almost looked like underwear. Where we couldn't tell. Yeah, like but terry he, cloth. Yeah, I, but I love it how quick and how quick we have to assess the situation. Like we just see Brock in bed, and then you hear a commotion, and then he comes in being beaten on by the mom with something on his face. He starts beating up on the kid. She maces them both in the face, and then as soon as she sees that it's the sheriff, and she started her turn her. just goes, "What did you do?" <laughs> And start. Why is he here? And starts hitting the kid. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. Great reaction. It's a great reaction. It's like it's this like invaders the come in to of... beat up my child. Wait, it's the it's the sheriff, the, the his girlfriend's father. Why is he here? Yeah. <laughs> what did you it's the, do? It's the mirror image of the fight he just had with his daughter. Like, no, I'm not going to ask if you're okay. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> and then he returns to the uh, hospital, putting his clothes back on like a werewolf who has just, you know, turned back to normal, right? <laughs> putting his clothes back man. on, and 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 he's all, you know, like a sickly Peter Parker, you know, <laughs> all uh, all ashen. Hi, honey. How's it going? Trying to keep the lies going, and then that beautiful like pan over to see that he's. His dad is not in the bed anymore. Yeah. Again, he was not, he's not concerned with his family first the way he was supposed to be. He's off, he's off doing the wrong thing. Off doing the wrong, where were you? I'm, and he says, I'm protecting the family. Right. Right. Yeah. What a great line. It was a fantastic line. This is, that, that gets at the heart of men. Like he thought he, he was, but no, he was really just acting on his rage. Then moonshot, followed by evidence. No, followed by liquor being set down. Now this 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 next shot, this shot right here, I didn't realize I had tons of like questions about until I was going through the notes and I'm like, yeah, what, what are we looking at here? I didn't realize this. Maybe you did, and I'm just an idiot. But like he's pulling jeans out of an evidence bag. And then no. from the jeans, he's taking a uh, he pulls a pistol out of it. 
and then you see him basically adjusting his belt right after that. So I'm assuming he's taking a pistol from this bag and he's using it, but then... So it can't be traced to him. Right. And so then later in the end sequence, I realize he's using that revolver and because they, they showed earlier that the, all the other cops have Glocks, right? They don't have revolvers anymore. But here's the thing. I went back and I had a, suddenly had a thought. Because I was like, whose jeans are these? Why are they in evidence bags? What's going on? That's his dad's gun. Because his uh. dad's carrying a... He sets the revolver on his desk in the, when, he, uh, after, when they get to the police department in the first scene. He sets a revolver in a leather... Ca- in a leather holster, he takes it off his belt, puts it on his desk, and sits down. And it sits out of focus in the front of the frame when he's talking to John from the desk. Why would his dad's jeans be in an evidence bag? That's what I don't know. I don't know, but I don't realize the last scene makes so much more sense if it's his dad's gun. Because he's take, literally trying to be more like his dad to to be the man he couldn't be earlier. And now he's going to take his dad's gun to do to take down the bad guy that makes sense and that's a good thing but why is it an evidence bag and that led me to believe that and i this is complete fabrication that was done just before the recording and it's probably not true but it makes me wonder if there was something else that was cut like like maybe one of the reasons why officer robson is there at the hospital with jenna when he comes back is maybe there was an incident at the hospital because why would the dad's jeans and gun be taken as evidence? But this would be a more targeted... I don't, I don't remember the evidence bag. I uh, went back and I watched it a bunch of times. Because I was like, nope, evidence bag. And I'm trying to read what's on it, but it's too small. And um, and then you see him take the holster with the gun. And then he does his belt. And then they make a big show of his belt later unnecessarily. when they don't, Because it would have happened earlier. Um, after he leaves the dormitory at the end. So you, the assumption is, is that that's what he's put in his daughter's um, uh, drawer, that he's put Grandpa's service revolver because he's hmm. undo, He's tightening his belt back up when he, he's walking out of the, the dorm. Um, that's my guesstimation. That's, I don't know if that holds water. But I don't know why it's being pulled out of an evidence bag. But it's definitely his dad's gun. Hmm. And that's what I... The first time I saw the movie, the end of the movie, the first two times, I was like, well, we don't know what he put in there. We just assume it's a weapon of some sort or some sort of prote- way to protect herself against the men of the world. And it was startling to her. But uh, now I'm pretty convinced that it's the, it's the dad's revolver because of the way they, they made a big deal about the belt. Every time. Well, I missed that. It, it it took six viewings. Actually, take that back. It took me going through it with notes. So it's technically a seventh viewing for me to, <laughs> to kind of understand that that's what that was. So I don't. I mean, uh, I don't feel bad about myself. Like, don't try to. You know, no, no, no. To... <laughs> I'm just saying it wasn't. It wasn't clear. It, it it the elements. What you needed to know was there for things to make sense, but. Yeah. When you look at it a little bit closer, you're like, well, wait a second. Is it's not a, essential knowledge. It's not. A, uh, that's right. That's, not essential that's, knowledge. That's and that's sure. that's for, that's wise that it uh, it didn't. We just knew he was getting a gun. Don't know from where or why. You know. You know. But that's what I think is going on. 
I had a big question from this sequence. Okay. Is that there's a part where he pulls a tooth out of his mouth. Yeah. Like a bloody tooth. What's that all about? I don't know either. I, I, the only, I had a question about that too. Is it, it, it just seemed to be like evocative of. He's just falling apart. He's literally falling apart. Energy, yeah. <laughs> is it because he's uh, drinking Listerine instead of swishing with it? <laughs> I guess just teeth. Just it just seemed like body horror at that point. Or the the thing that I thought about all the time was uh, uh, Affliction with Nick Nolte, where he's the whole time got like a toothache that's basically driving him crazy, uh, and he doesn't do anything about it. And then in the end, he yanks it out. And that's kind of one of the things that sets him right because he just finally took care of the thing that was driving him crazy. So I wondered if that was an allusion to that, but that seems, I don't like to, allusions to other movies don't really help a movie, the one I'm watching. So uh, I don't really don't know what that really was supposed to be other than just monster imagery, I think. Okay. But I did like the fact that- We've seen him shoot at the werewolf, so we don't think, I mean, I never- was on the track of, of hmm. John Marshall as the werewolf, but having seen him shoot at the werewolf, we really don't think he right, yeah, is exactly, at this point exactly. in the movie. At this point, we're pretty sure it's it's another entity. Yeah. Although it could be a Matthew Lillard, Skeech Ulrich situation. I don't know. Could be. Um, <laughs> I like that he's being refused admittance to AA. Yeah. Just do the steps. I'm going to step to you right now. <laughs> um. And this, and then the scene before he pulls his tooth out, he's drunk in the office and vaping. He's vaping. So, like, what? Uh, I don't know why this is tied to this point here, um, either. So, a lot of questions in that scene. Got the saddest, saddest moment is when his daughter's begging him just go to bed. Yeah, and he's crying that he's an orphan <laughs> at yeah. thirty nine. And By she way, has to be the. She's got to step up and be the parent. That's a sad moment. It's a very sad moment, and it was well done because you know, he led her up the stairs earlier to go to bed, and now she's dragging him up the stairs. Yeah, and has to do the same thing, and he's a complete. That, that, that's a domestic horror scene, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he says again, right there. He says he cries the last thing he said to his father. He'd catch him, but instead, I'm drunk. And then this is where Meth Guy uh, ODs, right? Under a waning moon. Yeah. Yeah. With the so big, the big ass wolf in yeah. his trailer. Right. And then we cut to uh, John Irishing up his coffee in the police department. Now, now this is another Wade breach, maybe. But <laughs> I just saw the other day, I just watched uh, Friday the 13th Part 2 for the first time. Uh, I've not realized I hadn't seen any of these movies except for eight, nine, and Freddy versus Jason. So I'm kind of going through them all because of the podcast with Gorley and Russ that I love so much. And so I was watching part two, and there's a big deal made of this one moment when Jason Voorhees raises his knife. Uh, this is a pre-hockey mask. This is bag head Jason Voorhees. And he lifts okay. his knife, and... Only his hand and his fist are in focus, and everything else is out of focus, and a girl is screaming in the corner. And it's just left for a very long time. And on it, Jason has like a very pronounced bruised thumbnail, like at the cuticle. 
You see that twice in this movie. Yeah, I saw. Where'd you see? I only saw it with this shot with the coffee. Where else did you see it? It's it's. I don't. I can't tell you where, but it's oh. twice in this movie. You okay, see I have that. to look for that again because I only saw it the first time, and it was I immediately. Maybe it was just my experience, but I immediately thought of Jason Voorhees, and I thought <laughs> that it works. Pretty specific. <laughs> it works, but uh, yeah. the fact that they had they didn't use a hand model. It's like it's there. I just wonder. Maybe they did. I just wonder, you know, I kind of might have been a hand model. You don't know. Maybe they used a hand model to have the bruise. Yeah. 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 That's what I'm saying. Maybe there's like a guy with the permanent bruise and he's like, he's the guy you call. (laughs) (laughs) He was my Voorhees. Oh, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Brought him out of retirement. (laughs) Brought him out of retirement to do this shot. For the one. Bruzy, the cuticle king. Like that's what the. Cuticle King. Agency but, book. But uh, uh, Lynn Holm comes in with some nice, uh, stern, quiet reprimands. And uh, when. Yeah. Got you the s- flu? Like, yeah. Got the flu again? Vel- velvet Hammer. That was a nice. Uh, yeah, the Velvet Hammer. Way you say it. Uh, and uh, then I love when the body comes in. It's not a relief to see this body, to see. The killer caught to Jim to to John Marshall is not a relief; it's shame. Because it wasn't about the murder's ending; it was about him catching him. Yeah. Right. And then coroner uh, scene: Gary is vaping. <laughs> is this just because you can't smoke in movies now, or are they really trying? Are they making some connective connections here that I'm not getting? Um, but he fills John in on the killer. A note I didn't notice before until I had the captions on was that he said the syringes were made out of silver. Kind of doing yeah. the whole werewolf thing. My daughter could have solved this and she's six. <laughs> right. I'm going to tell the press. And then he says, you threw that bottle, beer bottle at us. Now, how did he know that? I thought he was just making something up, but Gary looks pretty suspicious afterwards. Oh, yeah. It was totally Gary. No, I didn't. But, yeah, but where was he? Where was Gary? What was he doing out there? It's it's really not plausible. Yeah, it wasn't plausible at all that A, he'd know, or B, that he would even be there to do it. Yeah. He just hangs out by the sides of the road. Where there really is like an open field and no place to hide. Right. No place that he could hide where he could have thrown that bottle at that yeah. distance. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, I, it was that it stretched really credulity for me. But I still like the moment of just that mystery solved of you did that. No, I didn't. It seemed almost like just like the unit, like I want this to be true. And he's like, and it turned out to be true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's of no consequence either. Like it doesn't right. matter. Doesn't right. matter. He fires Gary. Um, yeah, I love that. Who? Uh, I want to know who played Gary because he's pretty great. He made me laugh uh, in every scene that he's in. Yeah, he's really good in every scene. And then there's a, uh, the scene where we're in the patrol car back where uh, Ricky Lindholm really gets to show for the first time unleash a little of her frustration about him about john and how he's got to cut it out where he's like look you still win when the other guy knocks the eight ball in you still win and then he responds with it's my wedding anniversary today (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll do these returns on New Year's Day. And he says Happy New Year, which I wasn't aware it was New Year. But uh, hey, two New Year's movies in a row for you watched it wrong. We're on a roll. We're on a roll. We we didn't plan this. We didn't plan to have uh, 2020 end with not one but two New Year's Eve movies. But hey. I think we should keep it up and do a whole year of New Year's movies. <laughs> New Year's Eve movies. Gotcha. Can't get enough of that. All the Lang sign. <laughs> oh. Great movie song. Used to my favorite use of All Lang Syne in this movie. Followed by When Harry Met Sally. Maybe. There's probably another one. I don't know. That's a Wonderful Life. It's got a great one. Yeah, I'm not sure I've even seen that all the way through. I've I've seen it all, just not in together. Oh, okay. (laughs) I do old Jimmy Stewart, remember? (laughs) (laughs) You're more of the Campbell Soup fan. I'm more of that. Yeah, I'm more of that area. I I prefer his later work. (laughs) As a television star. As the thing that other people made fun of that I liked, and I'm doing that. <laughs> so yeah, this is now we got the evidence returns. He's being spat wait, wait, out. no, I, I, sorry, we got to oh, go sorry. back to the two of them in the car. Right, right. She puts her hand on his leg. Yeah, he does. She does. Reaction. Like, that's a moment. It's a moment. It's a line. It's a camera move. Um, I like that. That nothing. There, there are little moments that hint at a familiarity between them like when he comes back in from kicking Bo out and says Julia tell me about this and she says it's Officer Robeson yeah right like no don't don't do that to me here so they they kind of hint that there might have been there might be something that either has been between them or is but I'm, I'm glad it's not ever pers- like like yeah, it's better that it's just left out. I think. It's I mean, amb- she- yeah, it's ambiguous what that, what that means, right? And I think it. I, I agree with you. It's it's better. I mean, she's it there. Is she- like, it is like she's trying to bridge a gulf. That's exactly you know? what I was gonna say. I think she's you know? like, you're gonna listen to me now, and if it takes me to touch you in an intimate way, I gotta get through to you. You know. Yeah, and it's like I'm normally just about doing the job and just doing the best police work i can uh which you're always demanding of everybody else but uh i apparently don't get noticed that i'm doing it constantly but (laughs) but at this moment i'm not just doing my job like i'm actually concerned for you like i want you to be a better boss yeah exactly (laughs) you know like and and a better person like you need to fix yourself yeah and then and then they do that cross cut of him opening his door and then he's opening the door from his trucks and throwing more bottles under his car. So he is not taking that advice right out of the gate. No, that's him. That's him saying I'm done with the bottle. Isn't it? I just thought he was drinking more. I thought he was, I thought, I didn't think he was literally done with the bottle. I thought he was just literally done with the bottle. So I'm done with it. I, well, maybe I'm just wasn't paying it. That's not him getting out of that car. No, it's him getting out of that his conversation. Car. No, he's, he's getting out of the truck. Clothes. You're right. He's, it it crosscuts from him getting opening the door of the patrol car and then getting out of the driver's seat of his truck. Right. He's in the driver's seat. Yeah. Right. And then he's throwing a bottle away. I was. Uh, I guess I was still thinking about that hand on the leg, but yeah. I I read that as uh, he was 
giving up the the drink, but I think mm. I watched it wrong. <laughs> well, given you know, to your credit, the this movie and to this movie's credit, it's there's so little intimacy between people in this movie that even the slightest bit, when it happens, is powerful. You know that. So I had that observation about take this movie combined with Thunder Road, like the mm-hmm. only pursuit of sex <laughs> in those two movies is the daughter in this, this movie. Right. And a kiss in the hot tub. I guess they're getting ready for sex in the yeah. cabin, but there's, uh, the, but that the, felt more like a horror trope than a story point. But it's, it's just that the protagonist, one of Michelle Citron's, uh, criticisms of my script, Super Cops, was that. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. I'm sorry, I, did, I forgot about it took, Super Cops. It's it's a bad it's a it's a bad script. Um, was that it took place in a sexless world and that there was no, it just didn't seem adult because there's no it's there's no sex in this world like it's it's, it's a right. sexless, which uh, you know is common to a lot of things I write. Uh, I think. <laughs> oh, me too. And it's funny, like uh, the the Jim Cummings characters, they're just all from such broken relationships that he doesn't right. even want a new one, you know? Right. A new one's not even like in his imagination. Like he's just trying to salvage what relationships he still has. Oh, yeah. I think that's interesting. It's, it's unusual. Yeah, I, I actually kind of, it's kind of refreshing. I, you made me think, I was actually thinking earlier today about a script I wrote at at college that was going to be my grown-up script. Someone who hadn't ever had sex was going to write a movie about sex. <laughs> uh, and it, or relationships, rather. And it was one of those things where, like, you know, sex isn't the important thing. You know, it's, it's the other stuff. And, like, it was called Should. And my screenwriting professor said, yeah, this would be good for dialogue samples. <laughs> and, uh, and she's right because, you know, it's obviously written about people grappling with being sexually active who, from, by, written by someone who w- hadn't been sexually active before <laughs> <laughs> and would think thoughts that people who had sex would never think. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, oh, that's why I've never rewritten that script because I'm like, I think that one's just dead. Yeah. Going back and reading my stuff uh, from when I was young, it's so obvious to me now. Like all of them scream like terror at the idea of sex. Yeah. <laughs> like, and uh, me too. Um, refusal to believe that anybody would ever want to have it with me. <laughs> like 100% me too. Like that's the subtext of everything. <laughs> Uh, that I was writing back then. That's the subtext of the things I write now. <laughs> <laughs> back then it was the text. <laughs> now it's kind of taken a behind glass at this point. Oh boy. But yeah, no, that's, it's interesting. I, I, I do get a little bit, I mean, the stereotype of college kids being, constantly sexually active or even active before they get there um, may very well, you know, I can't speak to it to, to how true or not true that is by margins. But uh, I remember being very kind of upset at like uh, 
screenwriting and, and, and the fiction department all criticizing us by like not having this, this, you know, these feels like they, there's no sexuality. There's no sexual drive. There's no, what's up? It's like, we're kids. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're writing about a power dynamic that I don't even know anything about. Like, like how is this? I kept, have, I remember having a big, um, Michelle Citron to bring it back up. And I have to confess it. I, I'm, I, I think I now understand, but she was saying how sex is all about power. It's a, it's a power dynamic. And I'm like, uh, that's not romantic. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. Says the guy who's never had sex before. And then, uh, you know, now I'm like, okay, I see where she's, I definitely see now where she's coming from. And, um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's like, I, I thought it kind of unfair to judge us, be, judge our work that it didn't have things that people our age wouldn't have yet. You know, well, many of them had, uh, well, 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 but not well, in a mature or realized way. Yeah. Some people can have sex, but not be wise about sex. That's oh uh, yeah, people. sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a polite way of saying uh, you have to write what you know, but you don't know anything yet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Try writing about your childhood. That's what they all should have made us do. Right. Exactly. And then I did, and I got <laughs> shot down. Ugh. Which one was that? <laughs> oh no, I wrote this. It wasn't good. It was actually a Calvin and Hobbes ripoff. Mm. Um, but what it was was called Battleground, and, and it was a script about. Um, it was a short film about a boy whose his brother had been hit by a car, and um, was now in a wheelchair, and he was hit by a car crossing the street, and now his brother. So was, you're writing what you know. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. But his, well, in a way, I was because his brother was never left his room. He was angry. He was more angry than traumatized, but he was just angry in his room. He never came out. And his younger brother was the lead of the story. The younger brother was now afraid to cross the street because he saw what happened to his older brother. Okay. And this was the conceit I came up with as an excuse for doing what I actually wanted to do, which was I wanted to have snowman monsters. <laughs> so turns out, in retrospect, the excuse that I came up with was way richer than the whole point of the script. And so the, the, the visual conceit was whenever the boy was wanting to, was felt the urge to go across the street, because there was a girl that he liked living across the street, the girl next door, uh, he would feel the desire to go across the street to talk to her. But in doing so, these hideous snowman monsters would form on the front yard and scare him away from crossing the street. Okay. And it's of course, it's in the wintertime. And then there's a scene where the oh, boy... Makes sense now. Yeah, it makes sense now. Uh, and then there was a scene where boys, his ball rolls in the street and kids are... Are, are are teasing him snowball uh what no his just basket whatever they're playing with some shit i don't know i didn't know i was <laughs> i lived in the country across from cows i didn't have neighbors um and so right, i don't what know you what know, boys did together um they get a cow he wants to go see across right, the street. <laughs> exactly and so um and so at that point the 
brother in the wheelchair gets upset and comes out and rolls across the street and gets the ball and comes back and angrily gives it back to the kid and then goes back inside. And then from there, little boy's like, okay, the brother, he's seen his older brother do what he thought. He wasn't afraid to go across. So now he's going to go across. And then all the snowmen know it and they all come up in form like a, there's like a big Henry VIII kind of style battle of Agincourt, you know, snowmen battle between him and the snowmen trying to get through. And finally he gets through and then he gets to the other side and he rings the doorbell and that's the end. So, you know, there was, in retrospect, what I just kind of threw together to be make an excuse for this CG spectacle uh, was better than this the CG spectacle. But I got uh, raked over the coals by the professor, and he was saying, this isn't a, I don't understand. The story's with the older brother. The story's with the older brother who got hit. It's his trauma. It's his fear that he needs to overcome. I don't understand what the younger boy's problem is. And I got really upset because I was like, then you've never been a younger brother. (laughs) Because when you idolize someone, what happens to them either affects you or you think it's going to affect you. So it was about that. It's funny that I started getting upset about the defense of the thing that I didn't actually care about initially. And then realized that was actually my whole reason for writing it. That's what it was about. It was about the sibling adoration and how that cripples you, you know. And so uh, I was like, you've never been a younger brother. You don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's what that is. That'll be a bonus episode. What's that? Experience with his dad is setting Limits on what he can imagine himself being. Exactly. Thanks for bringing it back around. You're welcome. It's my job. <laughs> so now we get uh, to the montage of returning the property. Right. So he's getting spat at by the grandmother of the da- of the of the of, the, of Miley who was killed. He's getting so he drop kicks the evidence the and the rattle falls out. Oh, yeah. that's a killer. Yeah. That's a killer detail. Really, because you don't know who he's talking to at first. Well, he says Fairchild, but it's not really registering. And then when that happens, yeah, that's that one sums everything up for you as the context. But it's it's killer. Um, and then it's Costco with his eight, with his uh, uh, AA group, and again he repeats that thing we talked about where he says I lied to my dad that I was going to get this killer and I didn't. To where <laughs> failure so the is suspect. This, he doesn't say killer, he says suspect. He says suspect. And then, yeah, I'm working on that. Killer. <laughs> killer. Yeah, I'm, wor- right. I'm working. Which could- is a great red herring because we think it's his problem. Yeah, it's his problem. That he can't accept that the killer is, is gone. But he's right. It turns out he's right. <laughs> and he's... Uh, uh, <laughs> and I love in these moments, these deep moments, there's still this human comedy where he's like kind of making amends and going, I was rude to Carla. I had hateful thoughts about Ricky and his whole family. (laughs) And and he's got that look on his face. Like, like this is, this is a perfunctory admission. He doesn't, it's not, he's not cleansing himself of the hate. He's just being honest about it. And it's like, it's like Ricky is like Jerry on parks and rec. It's like, no one can help but hate him. Even though not really a big reason to hate him. (laughs) And then he has that great sequence where he says, 
uh, when you're having a nervous breakdown, the only clue that you can that you have that anything is terribly wrong with your life are all the wonderful people around you keep asking, is everything okay? And you just go, yeah. It's a really nice, um, and this harkens back to the first basement scene where he says, I don't hear people. I, I don't hear people. Mm. And it's that moment the evidence box is being put away by Julia, who during the sequence, by the way, notes the Xeroxed page of the seam ripper. Right, brings it back. Reminds us, Reminds puts us it about back in that. our memory, so puts the a short guy thread. back in our memory in this right. uh, sequence too. Um, Wild eyes. So now this this feels a little weak to me, but I don't I don't really I don't really got a problem with it. But so PJ calls and says and set, calls ropes and on the card she left to say, hey, you know, you, you get this this thing in the evidence isn't mine. It's like a seam ripper. I don't know. Looks old. And then she puts it together that it's Paul Canary. How? So now that I understand that the taxidermist is the owner of the cabin where they were killed, mm-hmm. I can. I think and I can put it together that, that he's written a book. They, the right that the taxidermy tool was there as part of the crime scene or just because it was left at the property when they were collecting the victim's property at the cabin that got lumped in there because they thought it was just part of the victim's property seam ripper thing taxidermist tool he must have been at the crime scene but he owns the cabin too so he's got a pretty good reason for and he didn't kill her with a seam ripper. He killed her with claws that he fashioned into wolf gloves. It's really not clear how that seam ripper would have been useful in the execution of his crimes. Right. And it didn't It didn't warrant her dropping everything, getting her uniform on, and then racing to, Paul, to the taxidermist's place. And not calling anyone else. Yeah, you can kind of assume drive. that he she tried and you know he wasn't getting reception out there. Yeah, but she so, wasn't out there. But she wasn't out there. But she could have called. She could have right. called the station. It yeah. seemed like at that point there was research to do, not trying to chase down a fleeing suspect. And she doesn't like. Does she know that John is there? Like, yeah, why? Why so. is she in the woods and not? Yeah, it doesn't really add up. Well, she could obviously, I mean, the the lights show up before they leave the cabin. So, like, he's stabbing John when the police lights show up. So, she can go in there and see that they've fled the scene and follow pursuit. So, that that, that makes some sense. I just don't understand why she suddenly went, I got to go right now. And make this arrest. And make this arrest because... Otherwise, by myself. By myself, now or never. And it's like, that didn't, I don't, I mean, the urgency was there. That's great. It felt, it felt right, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me as to like, I felt like something was missing. Yeah, It seemed pretty thin to suddenly put it all together. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I don't really get hung up on the mechanics of how mysteries mm-hmm. work. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't, I don't generally care that much. Um, it felt, I mean, it, it 
just felt just as arbitrary arbitrary to me that it's Paul Cannery is the one who's the killer. Right. Um, as anybody else. You know, like it doesn't matter that it's him instead of somebody else. Right? Right. What matters is is that when the information is in front of you, you accept it. And you listen to people. And, you know, you you're open to what's what's occurring. You know, it cuts from her getting that call and jumping up and hanging up on PJ to Paul opening the door for John in that yeah. weird angle of like, I'm barely in my chair or something. And boy, what, what would he have done if that pot, if that kettle hadn't started whistling at that moment? Um, Which I can't hear. I have tinnitus. Oh, okay. So there's some frequencies that are just gone. Oh, see yourself lucky <laughs> like my own, my own teapot. I cannot hear it uh, when it's ready. Our, thermometer our digital thermometer which oh, wow. uh you know when we've had our is this the our covid moment moment like okay i gotta check the thermometer and yeah. i'd have it in my mouth like right in front of my face and i'd say when is this thing gonna beep and everyone's like it's been beeping and like i cannot oh, hear wow. it so i never heard the tea whistle yeah. There were, there were key moments in the movie where you heard whistling, like during the scene with his ex-wife and he was getting angrier and like you could hear a pedal, kettle boiling and getting higher. And Seriously? Higher. Yeah, exactly. No and, the, and then he's just like, Brittany, I got it. All right. And it breaks, you know. Oh. So there's. Yep. Lost on They me. do that a lot in the movie, actually. There's a lot of that kind of thing. I'm like uh, Clive Owen in Children of Men. Like I just. Or uh Ryan Gosling and the nice guys. Really? A detective who can't smell? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. <laughs> that was a good movie. So eagle-eyed and elephant-brained viewers would, who caught Paul's uh, name on the taxidermy book and the Xerox evidence would put it together beforehand, but I sure didn't. Um, but again, it doesn't matter. But what was kind of interesting about the scene is because we don't know that name yet, we're looking at the scene going, okay, something's up. You know, we're very much aware that something is not right. Even if the pieces haven't been pulled together for us. Just the way he opens the door. Yeah, it's weird. He's bent over like he's a hunchback. The fact that he's already seated in the kitchen when he gets in there. Yeah. And things just aren't right. And then... Um, you know, can I spill something into your coffee? And it puts it. Oh, I thought it was really sweet that John. Yeah, he's, he's given up weird vibes. He's given up sure. weird vibes. And John's like, uh, admits that the Tribune did a good write up. Like, I'm trying to make my amends to Ricky. <laughs> Tribune kind of got it right. It's all right there. So, okay. So, wife away for the weekend. I'm not married. She couldn't hack it. Oh, I was just joking about the. What was he joking about? <laughs> the, the thing that alcoholics will. Just drink when the wife's away? Is that what he was... I don't know what he was I joking. think that's what the joke was. Right. That, yeah. Why, why? Having a little bachelor yeah. party. And I also wonder, did no one see Paul at his full height when he came in for questioning? Uh, if you sure were looking that. for tall people, you'd think they would know who the tall people in town exactly. are. And Yeah, it didn't really. And he's returning evidence on New Year's Eve. Lots of things like that. But still, the whole scene works very on a weary, unsettling, tense kind of feeling and i just it's, love it's scary when he stands up and his oh, it's face goes above the above corner the of the door, door jam yeah and then that yeah 
Okay. Well, you've answered the question earlier, but one of my questions was, and this is one of those where like this, the pieces didn't click into place for me on the mystery part. I loved all the red herrings in the movie. Yeah. I like, I loved, I enjoyed all that part. Which shows how hard police, how detective work can be because <laughs> there's tons <laughs> of red herrings. Um, but the when he says like something you said didn't sit right with me. I was like, well, what was the thing he said that didn't sit right with them? Oh, and yeah. And you're making the case that it's... It's the wife. That I'm, I, I, I don't have a wife. I thought it was when he asks, and is your daughter okay? Like, why would he be asking yeah. about my daughter? Um, well, that's another thing, yeah. That, that, uh, that's what I thought it was. After he asks about his daughter, Jim does that wonderful... Yeah, we're going to gymnastics, and she's... Um, he starts sucking on his teeth. Yeah it's, yeah, it's so great. Now that could have been it, but I, I thought it. I thought what he was referring to was the fact that he twice had heard him say, "My wife's going to kill me," yeah. or "Can I call my wife?" And then he said, "I'm not married." So I didn't even connect this guy to that. Yeah, exactly. Those scenes, though, because they shouldn't he, have had him shave. Yeah, facial right. hair. He's wearing different. He's wearing blue in those scenes. He's wearing red in this scene. Like, I need more help. I'm sorry. <laughs> They did everything else. They put the fe- the scarf in that person's hair. They did the vaping. The, they connected all this stuff. But yeah, it's I shaved. honestly thought this was the first time we were seeing this character in this movie. Oh wow! But he was returning. And so for me, it was saying like, the world is just full of these angry, dangerous men. Yeah, and that's what this movie is about. <laughs> But that's cool too. So, yeah. So I liked that choice. It's like, oh, there's this weird taxidermist way on the edge of town that nobody ever sees. And so they don't know he's seven feet tall. <laughs> and it's just that's the guy. And uh but it could have been anybody because Yeah, could have been anyone. Because men are fucked up. <laughs> like that's <Right. laughs> that's what I thought the movie was saying. And so uh, I like my version better, actually. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm wishing we hadn't seen him earlier in the movie. <laughs> Probably a lot of mystery fans would hate that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 still. I mean, it's an oddity, but it's it's why would he lie? Why would he keep talking about that? Why yeah, would he? So why does he? I don't know. So so I want to get to. I have a theory about that. Okay, I get into it now. So his his slip up is that he he's blaming his wife. He's fearful of his wife. And then he admits he's not married. So these false accusations of the women that that what gets him found out. Two two things. One, it made me wonder if Hannah was Paul's ex-wife, and that's why he took her head as opposed to anyone else, and that that's why she recognized him as being someone that she first went, oh, it's oh, it's someone I'm familiar with, and then. Wait, which one's Hannah? Hannah is the ski instructor. But she said it was Josh. Yeah, she mentions Josh that she was going to go see. Um, so I don't know, but I, I, I wasn't sure. Like, it made me wonder if a guy that treated him ba- her badly in the past was Paul. Um, yeah. And now she's seen this other guy, Josh, who treats him badly. Um, I don't know. I, I, that's, that's, that's me reaching for the top shelf again. Just really high. Reaching for a high shelf, not the top shelf makes it sound like it's better. Um, but it does tell me one thing, that this movie knows how to write movies. Because every single thing is timed to theme. 
Blaming women is the downfall of those who take their anger out on women. This remind, and it reminds me of a lengthy discussion I had recently with a friend of mine. Hey, Rob, um, uh, pissing on the later Star Wars movies, but I said, I like Last Jedi. I like Last Jedi a lot. And he's like, oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was trying to define why I like Last Jedi other than me just liking Ryan Johnson. Seems so coming back to Ryan Johnson. And I ended up finding, a, I never go to Reddit for confirmation, but I did find a Reddit thread that was actually quite good. This guy who said, look, the entire movie of Last Jedi is about communication and the failure to communicate. And it informs <laughs> everything. And he did a breakdown of almost every scene and in everything, it, it spoke directly to that. I mean, that's why he chose to go with a un slightly unknown but still canon, you know, force communicate communicating through the force of people who would never be in the same spot without fighting, and like mm -hmm. it was kind of silly and clumsy, but and the people turned on it. But it was so centrally tied to it was like the force saying, "You guys got to talk this out." And then the f opening scene of uh, Poe. Dameron with uh, the Star Destroyer. His whole gambit rests on pretending that they're not... He is to call the General Hux directly and then pretend he's not hearing him. All these things... The bad stuff that happens is either people miscommunicating or misconstruing because of their own ideals about what they just heard or what they didn't hear. Like, uh, you know, just Admiral Holdo who just doesn't communicate her plans and Poe is driven nuts by the incongruity that it, he's, it starts a mutiny and like mm -hmm. all these things are about community about communication every single thing is tied to that and that's why those last jedi for better or worse i think stands out in those last three movies because the other two are just curating a franchise and that one was written about something and about something very specific and everything was tied to it hmm. and uh same thing here it's written as movies should be written. And the slip up may not be the most satisfying Agatha Christie moment, you know, where everything, Hercule Perot puts everything and it all snaps into, oh, that makes perfect sense. But it's tied to the blaming of women, the anger towards women. That was a slip up. And so I, mm. I, I really dig it. I, uh, yeah, I agree. I liked it. I thought it worked on the thematic level. Um, and one of the most striking shots in the movie <laughs> is when, um, uh, so, uh, he's getting ceiling stabbed. Yeah. Uh, this Paul Canary, uh, for a skinny guy is pretty strong. Right. Uh, lifts, lifts him up. Uh, police lights appear. So he runs off. Not sure what his thought process right now, but he's got to go outside and put on his wolf costume before he runs away, before he escapes from the police. Right. Maybe he's thinking, I have to remove this evidence. But he's got a head in there. But maybe he's not thinking about the head <laughs> on his workshop bench. Um, but that's his power suit. That's what gives him. But when him... he turns around, so he's got the wolf costume yeah. on, he turns around. Yeah, that's right. He's like, his this is my skin. This is my true self. He's like Rorschach. He, when he turns around and does the scream. Yeah. Back at the camera. It's 
both a great. Sh- it's like, for me, it was a shot that worked. Yeah. Like, me too. oh, this is just the rage coming out of him, and oh, and this was the wolf sound he was making that people were hearing, uh, uh, and us that we were interpreting as a as a wolf sound. Um. But I could totally see how that shot wouldn't work for people. Oh, well, I could see how the shot could have failed, but man, it worked for me. It worked for me. I I can't see it not working. It worked for me too, but I could, it's not like. Yeah, I understand. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. I feel that way about a lot of things where it's like, I liked it, but I can totally see why someone would laugh at that. (laughs) This one, not so much. This one, I didn't get that vibe, but yeah. Really? I I, I I understand what you mean. I understand what you mean. It's a weird shot. It's a weird moment. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's got a very striking, like, placed moon. Yeah. And then his voice goes from a normal voice into a affected, deep guttural, which I'm assuming is digitally enhanced. And if it's not, kudos to that guy. <laughs> to make it that... It just seemed to be this, like, this lion roar of, I am here and I am power and you can't do anything about it. And I run away. Maybe it's just like, it's it's primal. It's primal and it's frightening, but it's also impotent at the same time. Yes, yes. That's what this movie is. Like he's not. Yeah, it's beautiful. He, you can't go. You can't just go on like this. Running away, putting on your wolf costume is not going to help you escape the situation. Right. <laughs> exactly. But I said, I need my. I need my. I need my thing. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't have his wolf head though. I don't think. No, and he doesn't have a plan. I mean, his plan is to keep running past Jim. <clears throat> but that that tackling. moment, that from the moment that he comes out of that, John, the, the moment that John, yeah, comes out of that workshop and is lifted up to the ceiling and stabbed, from that moment on to the end of that whole old Lang Syne sequence, I, it's it's one of those things that is both thrilling, but I am. I am crying. I've cried every time. <laughs> it's that uh, emotional to me. It's, 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 uh, and I think what does it is when they bring in Old Lang Syne. He gets hoisted up. The gun goes off. You see he's being stabbed, and they bring in Old Lang Syne at that point. It's like it's over. Mm. You're gone, and it's just and everything after that. You know, his dad's service revolver laying away and, you know, just the realization that he might very well fail again. <laughs> and then the, 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 the crazy oddity of seeing, you know, him this guy scream at him with impotent rage. Um, and then the wood chase of the woods. It's all, it, it, it's, it gets me up in here. You know, I'm just like, each time. It's oh, and pretty then when remarkable. He shoots him through the face. Well, there's the fireworks. The fireworks. Which, I mean, we all went. Right. We all went. Oh, oh, yeah, it's New Year's. I forgot. It was, <laughs> fireworks on New Year's. But yeah, I love the timing of his gunshots. It's well. First, Robeson takes him down. Yeah. He's distracted by the fireworks. Often, by the way, uh, I imagine a resolute new resolution is to quit drinking. That Bobby's tied in there somewhere. <laughs> And Robeson shoots, uh, uh, puts him down, and then John gets up. And the timing of his gunshots is pretty striking. Uh, it's really well done. 
Yeah, he takes PJ's advice. Yeah, he really. T- Although I couldn't see the ground, but yeah, he did his best. He did his best. Maybe a bigger caliber would have done. But, but then this is this next shot is where I feel if the movie has a werewolf transformation scene, it's the, it's right here. It's where the relief and satisfaction kind of kind of rolls out of him. Yeah, and the shot of him walking with his dad. Yeah, and then like he sees he's his dad. like, I did it, dad. But then, then the loss you can of be that proud of me now. came into that. Like, it's empty. It's an empty victory. And he collapses. And that was a really great sequence. And then we move. Anything you else want to say about that sequence? Uh, let's move on to the denouement. In the denouement. We go to Jenna's dorm room. And, oh, wait a second here. Where she punches a box. Yeah, so the they, they, they open. The cycle of rage continues. They open on um, the pepper spray that he bought her for communion. Mm-hmm. Right. It opens on the ledge of the window, and she's got that big bottle of pepper spray. And uh, then they do the fake out of you seeing Julia there with her and kind of making you assume that he died. He's that, dead. That yeah. John's dead. And Especially then, when you find out she's sheriff. Yeah. But this, well, let's talk about the Trinity syndrome for a moment, as coined by Tasha Robinson, where it's where you see all these movies where, and even movies that make fun of it, like a Lego movie or something that like points it out to say this is weird, you know, where where the highly qualified over uh, overqualified and clearly more competent and already experienced and trained woman is the tertiary character who is in service of making the clueless, not trained, not experienced man rise to his place. Yeah. Right. Like Trinity from the matrix. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Lego movie played with that, I think to a great hilarious degree, but it still did do it. Um, (laughs) I didn't mind it, but it still did it. Um, uh, and Lego Movie Two kind of course correct tried to address that a little bit, um, but here again in some reviews that I read that made me a little feeling a little angry, um, we're citing about how they were saying that they felt that there was a much better movie to be made in following Julia around because she was obviously more competent and um, a stronger woman and stronger character that she should really be who we're following around. And normally I would agree, but um, this whole movie is about male anger. And it was nice to, I, to see the, you being forced to identify as an audience member with someone who was participating in that male anger rather than other, being like the other. So like the audience would be like, oh, that's the, that's the other that our hero is against. And so I, yeah. I think it's much more powerful and much more important to the story to have it be follow this guy. But also just as important to the story is that John Marshall not ascend to because he killed the bad guy, he's now sheriff. It made he's sense. Apparently that, not even a cop anymore. Yeah, he's probably not. <laughs> and so like um, uh, Julia was clearly the more competent choice or the more, the better, the superior choice to to take over as sheriff in yeah. every respect. So, 
She's going to be supplanted. <laughs> he's been supplanted as sheriff. He's been supplanted as the parent. She is, she right. is providing the parental guidance right. in this scene. Right. Yeah, and he's still kind of incapable on the uh, on the sidelines of yeah. fully expressing himself or or even having the kind of, like like when she resists his uh, 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 him talking about stuff he turns and cries like I would instead of he doesn't get mad but now it's replaced by by sadness instead of like no I need to communicate with you I need to tell you as a father this these things I think we both want to hear and say but uh, instead he's still crippled by that insecurity so instead just oh, yeah. okay well and he's damaged the relationship. Yeah, really. he has. Right. And it's hard to, to and for him. It's hard to to to, you know, try to bridge that. But it shows how both are willing to, because when she does the teenager, oh my god, leave me alone, and then he leaves. The first thing she do is go, what did he leave me? Right. You know, it's like, and she smiles to herself in a way that she couldn't do in front of him. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. terrible. So this is where I think, oh, this is where I think that, you know, he's left the pistol because then he's later, she's shocked. And oh, yeah, yeah. He's he's pulling the, the belt up. Um, there's a little dig, again, that makes me slightly uncomfortable, but I, it's a little more pleasurable that John gets at least some vindication in the sense that his ex-wife was railing on him for, this is a big deal. You can't play. You can't do this. And then he's there, but she can't come because of traffic. <laughs> yeah. It's so crushing that, you know, and I see why she's angry, you know, because it's like, you can't come because of to this thing that you know is a big deal because of traffic. Right. But then in that wonderful, I love the end of this movie. I love it. I love it that he's walking out and then here's just a couple of dudes saying, oh, the gymnastic team just moved in. The, oh, fresh meat. And then that... He tenses. But then he, he, he keeps going. That's his moment of growth. Yeah. That's his, that's his like, moment of growth in the going. movie. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. That he does not turn on the aggression to solve this problem. He's like, she is um she is capable of taking care of herself that's right i've i've give i've given her all the tools i know guns. she's at least as capable <laughs> as me right he's at least as capable as me and that's what you prepare that's what you should be doing as a parent is preparing them you're raising an adult you've got to prepare them to be capable yeah so um, then the, after that, you get a flash of in memory of Robert Forrester being his last role. And at this point, I'd like to tell a quick Robert Forrester story. Okay. Well, preceded by one, if anybody wants a master class in acting in just the craft of being an actor, not necessarily actoring to listen to the podcast, Malton on Movies. Um, with Leonard Malton? Yes, with Leonard Malton and his daughter. Do you have to listen to Leonard Malton? Yeah, no, it's fine. Ooh, and uh, Robert Forrester Sorry. is a guest. 
and just find it's the episode of Want Lawn Movies, Robert Forrester, and that's the best hour you'll get about acting. Period. Really? Yeah, it's amazing. It's one of my favorite things I've ever heard on a podcast or in a I documentary. You're making honestly. me download something by Leonard Maltin. <laughs> well, listen to it for Robert Forrester. Um, think just just think you're doing a Forrester. Um, Anyway, I want to tell a, a, a quick story. A friend of mine who I think would probably like to be nameless, um, but I'm going to co-opt his story. Just know it's not mine. He said, um, I was talking about The Black Hole, which stars Robert Forrester. How much I love The Black Hole, as cheesy as it is. and I love it. And um, he said, I got to watch The Black Hole with Robert Forrester and his wife sitting in front of me. He said the greatest thing, the thing that I so much love so much is that in the scenes, in the scene where Robert Forrester saves the girl in the movie, they started making out. Because <laughs> that made me feel so good. And I go, it makes me feel good too. That's a good relationship. <laughs> They're in the theater making out to his heroism. <laughs> Or because it was a cheesy Disney movie and they had to do something. Either way, it's super cool. Uh, maybe she likes seeing her man. Uh, yeah. Like that. I know. It's an old-fashioned kind of sexuality, but it was hey, a very fun story to hear. Somebody has to genuinely be turned on by that or it never would have become a thing. <laughs> That's true. <sighs> well, this... So as long as we're talking about acting. Okay. Can we talk about Jim Cummings as an actor? Sure. I, watching the, his two movies, I was like, who else is he like? Like, my my first instinct <laughs> was like, is there a precedent for what Jim Cummings is doing as an actor? I it, couldn't, who is he like? He's too... Like if you, th- if you think of other movies where you've seen with another character like this, they're like a big, they're like, uh, they're like Popeye Doyle or something. It's like a Gene Hackman or a Harvey mm-hmm. Keitel or, um, you know, some big brawny guy. And so like to see the skinny guy who's erupting with rage and violence all the time as a skinny guy, <laughs> I loved it, you know? And uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow is two skinny guys uh, at the climax. <laughs> hey, wow. You know, That's me up there. How... shooting each other. You know, it's like you don't see that very often. Mm. Um, but body type aside, I was like, how do you how do you classify him as an actor? And I was, was like reaching for the two things he reminds me of. And here's the two I, I came at, came up with. Both from television, strangely is um, he the way you see him pinball around his emotional yeah. state reminds me of Jiminy Glick. <laughs> is that <laughs> Martin Short? Only, only I believe it more. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> is that like within scenes, like, like what well, is fascinating about him as a performer and the characters he writes is like, these 90 degree, these sharp 90 degree turns in emotion that he keeps going through. And 
And now I, I, I don't have any examples prepared. You'll come up with some. Uh, yeah. Like where he's just talking about something. In the middle of saying it, he realizes how pissed off he is about the thing or how fucked up it is. And now suddenly he's enraged about it. You know, whereas right. like a split second before he was talking about it like a normal thing. Uh, and he <laughs> and just like how Jiminy Glick does it, like in the middle of a question, like he sounds like he's going to ask a softball, but then he veers into asking you about your dead grammar or something. I don't know. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I think I think it's though it's it's just a technical acoustical similarity, though. Like Jiminy Glick. Is Why do their voices are alike? I'm not talking about the vocal intonation of the voice. I'm just talking about your your ping ponging thing. Yeah, um, but the, it's the emotional Jim, ping ponging. What I think, well, see, I don't. I wouldn't call it ping ponging. I would call it hurt avoidance. I think what Jim Cummings does so well in both of these characters, and and to a palpable degree in in Thunder Road, is he's I'm going to try not to be hurt and I'm going to go down this road to walk away from the hurt and then I found more hurt so I need to go somewhere else now you know mm. and so when he's fully breaking down I just can't and then he realizes he's going to be embarrassed and hurt by that embarrassment so then he just kind of, yeah and then so we <laughs> you know trying to move on <laughs> and that just seems like someone who's not quite aware that people have memory of the two seconds that just came before. <laughs> it's a very youthful um, mindset. Maybe they didn't notice. Hi, uh, Wade in the edit. A, a better way to put it is that Cummings is innately aware that people can have multiple emotions exist at the same time that are equally powerful that vie for the same space. And he writes his characters that way, brilliantly. Uh, love and appreciation can exist at the same time as anger and retribution, and is no better exemplified than in Cummings' parking lot rant in Thunder Road. Talking about your problems never helped anybody, ever! I slept in my car! Right here! Three weeks! Jerry saw it! Isn't that right, Jerry? Yeah, I brought you breakfast. Thank you so much for doing that, Jerry. That meant a lot back then, but fuck you right now. You're drunk. I'm not drunk. I'm angry. I realize that. I'll calm No, I'll calm down. I lost my daughter today. And I did everything right. So the other thing he connects to me, the other thing he connects to is um, uh, Hannah Horvath from Girls. Uh, oh, Lena Dunham? Shit. Yeah, Lena Dunham is as Hannah Horvath, that or uh, or people we know uh, who just have like zero filter, and so everything that's in their internal process is just tumbling out of them I'm, I'm constantly. Thinking, I'm working it out for my head. <laughs> yes, <laughs> don't work it out. right. That is, is a, so I, I was I was ta- one just, time I was talking out loud. You just told the end of a story. Yeah, yeah. I know. I just told the end of a story. One time, uh, Siggy was, uh, we were doing something and I was talking out loud and he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just, I'm just working it out in my head. And he said, you're speaking out loud. And I said, well, I'm working it out for my head. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the people we know, I think we know who we're talking about. (laughs) And I think Lena Dunham does that brilliantly. I love, I, I, I love, uh, 
her work in girls. Um, but that's what, uh, I don't know. That's what he reminds me of. But what do you, what do you, what do you make of him as an actor? I was What's trying going to, on there. You're right. I, he's, he's like a hit song where when you hear it the first time you, you felt like you've heard it before, as they said in crazy heart, the great ones are the ones you think you've heard before. You know, it's like John Mellencamp. He reminds me of Mellencamp in a way. It was like going, well, who else sounds like Mellencamp? Nobody. <laughs> the great ones sound like ones you've heard before because they rip off uh, a blues artist or something. <laughs> the touche, that's actually very true. It's usually the key. Um, but you're right. There's like, there's like a feeling of, I've seen someone like this before and who is it? The only one coming to mind right now is Michael Sarah, but I can't, that's not quite right. But there is certainly, like Michael Sarah, a persona perfected. Well, it reminds me of, I mean, having seen two movies, I wouldn't have guessed after seeing Thunder Road that every <laughs> Jim Cummings movie I'm going to see a shade of the same character. But now that I've seen two that are like that, I'm like, oh, is this like what he's, is he gonna do that like is this what his he is or right um, I, I, i'm fearing i didn't have the same reaction that i i was it was much more welcome as opposed to when i saw the royal tannenbaums as much as i liked it i immediately thought wes anderson is just a little less brilliant because i'm like oh this is all he does <laughs> you know it was like i was looking forward to seeing a versatile filmmaker stretch his legs and then i'm like oh oh no this is this is just this is all he does okay all right, he's still great, but I thought... Wes Anderson's a, a hedgehog. The fox knows many things. The hedgehog knows one great thing. You know? Right. Uh, exactly. And it, it's and great. And that's okay. That's okay. So I, I would like, I'm, I'm very much excited to see what Jim Cummings does next. If it's another cop dealing with <laughs> uh, either a parental fulfillment issue then maybe i'll have that same feeling that i did with wes anderson but i, I actually i don't think i don't think so. i don't think that's going to be the case but if he you know if he does if he puts it into a new another genre and yeah this time it's a son then and it's a lord uh... huron situation you know <laughs> that's that's all that's that's what we got it's like oh no this is this is a fascinating meditation you know, I mean, if this, this is his haystacks, yeah, 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 I, I'll, I'll, I'm there right now. I'll keep watching them, you know, because he, he's Jim Cummings has joined the likes in my mind of Bong Joon Ho and Quentin Tarantino and Mariel Heller and Jeff Nichols and the MCU, honestly, of like it's event filmmaking for me. I'm not gonna miss, I'm there, I'm not gonna miss another one he does. And I, he's got a gaggle of short films that I need to track down and see. Well, they're just going to say the short of Thunder Road. Like, is that even findable? I don't know. I think, it, I hope so. From what I understand, it is it is just the first scene. Like, the whole short film is just the funeral. Yeah. And right. then it's reshot for the move feature, but it's it's just that. And then he, and so, in fact, from what I just learned recently, I think Jim Cummings runs uh, with some other people a uh, called Short to Finit, Short to Feature Clinic in Malibu, I think, where they basically they accept so many 
filmmakers who've made shorts who are looking to develop them into feature films and okay. he's assisting he's he's very very active in producing and getting other uh independent people's independent films made he's really inspiring if you see any of his interviews or any of his youtube uh stuff he's he's incredibly uh vivacious and like really bent on you just got to do it and you can do it get out there and do it now you can and it's really it's quite inspiring survivor's bias yeah, but I'm glad he kept doing it. Yeah, I'm glad he kept doing it too because he's make, he's now it's it's yeah anything. I'm glad he was I'm a there. survivor. Also, I think apart from Thunder Road, which I think this and Thunder Road they share so much DNA, it would be a good double feature. But I think he, I think another good match for a double feature with this movie would be another favorite of mine, uh, Nacho Vigalondo's movie Colossal. With Anne Hathaway. What's that? I have not seen that. It's on Hulu. See it. It's awesome. I think it would be a spiritual brethren um, to this movie in a way. In the way that it too also is like, feels like it's about one thing, but it kind of reveals itself to be about something else. And Anne Hathaway should have got an Oscar for it. Jason Sudeikis should have got some recognition for that because he's fantastic. Um, Fantastic movies from 2017. Yeah, I think my second or third favorite movie of that year. It's fantastic. And I think this would be a good double feature. Well, I guess I need to complete that double feature, don't I? <laughs> yes, you do. Well, as long as we're talking about other movies, are we wrapping up and uh, talk about what else we've seen lately? Yeah, what, what, have you been, what have you been watching lately? Okay, I'm cutting it off right here. Uh... Lord Cinecron decrees that you don't need to hear any more talk about other movies after. I mean, you just heard three hours and 12 minutes about the best one, so. I mean, I'm just doing you a favor at this point. Uh, so, no, no sign off, no pun. Sorry about that. Um, just, I'm sure Siggy and Wade would like you to, you know, visit their Facebook page that you watched it wrong or uh, go to. Twitter at you watched it wrong, but with a you instead of uh, you, or a you instead of you, but this is hard. Social media crap. Uh, or you can send them an email, whew, that's more like it, at you watched it wrong at happypanic.net. All spelled the right way. Um, well, do you want to, uh, I'll come up with a pun. Uh, if you... Uh, listen to this entire thing and still want more, you listen to it wrong. Here, see, I did it there too. Um, hallelujah. So, that's it. Goodbye. Uh, we've had enough of 2020. Why do we still want it to go on? Uh, I'm sure these guys will have new episodes in 2021. Their 50th episode's coming up. I'm sure they're going to do something special. Because... Because that's just what we need. Um, so yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm calling it. It's over. Go home. Take these earbuds out of your ears or whatever. Uh, if you, uh, I don't know why I'm doing this, but if you truly want to keep listening, uh, I'll just throw on here at the end um, some ramblings of uh, Wade and Siggy. Uh, after they stopped recording their show, they just kept on talking. 
uh, and ended up just spending several minutes fawning over Thunder Road. So if you have seen Thunder Road and you want to hear some people just slobbering about how great it is doing the whole Chris Farley show, uh, it's there. I, for one, am done with 2020. Happy New Year, and Cinecron out. Fun, I fucking love this movie so much. It's a great movie. I'm glad you like Thunder Road, too. I do think Thunder Road is a more perfect movie, but I keep watching Wolf of Snow Hollow for some reason. I watch Thunder Road, I'm like, I don't think there was a single flaw in that movie. No. I think that was a flawless movie. It really is. I and I love those moments of like you know after the hand clap scene with his daughter and he yes! does it and then he walks over to the wall and takes that he's on the phone he takes that piece of paper off the wall it's because until you see the piece of paper I'm like is this a dream right. sequence is this, <laughs> right. is this a, are we in a, like have we gone into a fantasy realm like what's right. happening and then you realize he just worked all night on it yeah it was so important to him. Like that was, and I just now made the connection. Here's how I'm going to succeed as a father. Do you? I just now made the connection. Do you remember when he says that his mother must spent all like would record all his textbooks, and then send yeah. him the audio tapes? She must have been so tired. Uh, oh, he, yeah. He, he stayed up all. He put the work in. Oh yeah. I just now realized right. that. Uh yeah, what a writer. Yeah, he's he's some there's so much going on in that movie. And 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 then to have the depths of drama when he's standing over his the corpse of his wife, ex-wife and then says this is from your daughter's husband and slaps her. Yeah. This, this is from your daughter and this is from your daughter's husband. It's wow. And then and then to go out and then have that scene in the ambulance of, uh, I'm going to take, we'll just go as far as we can. Just get in the car and go and, oh my God, it's that song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, like how, he, he's, he's said in some interviews that a lot of people don't like his stuff. And he goes, and I get it. I understand. It's not for everyone. Um, people will look at, what I say and they're like I don't get it it's a drama but I'm supposed to laugh what's this about (laughs) and the person he's talking to says yeah I don't understand that mentality at all because it's 2020 (laughs) (laughs) you know we should be able to know that you know there could be more than one element in a movie (laughs) (laughs) but he oh yeah he said something he said the, he he said something about um, oh I can't remember which who he cited as being the uh, uh, source but it might have been Del Close who he said the reason I put a lot of humor in my things is that I think you you need humor in a movie in any movie because the old adage of, is if if the movie isn't laughing at itself then the audience will be hmm. so you know you might as well. Have, you know, to have a sense of humor about yourself. So for a bit, um, we can't do my idea because we didn't we didn't come up, uh, and it's my fault. I meant to. Um, it's because I love the coroner character so much, and I want to see that actor uh, do more. Um, but he 
feels to me like this movie's version of Macon Blair's teacher in Thunder Road. <laughs> that's my favorite. I think that's my favorite scene in the movie. And so, so my idea good. for a bit was, so Gary's been fired. He's working as uh, like a substitute teacher, like the new science teacher at the school. And it's like him and Macon Blair in the break room. Like shooting the shit. I don't know. Like it, it doesn't work if you haven't seen both movies, and right, uh, it just be an excuse for me to get you to do a make him Blair impression. <laughs> oh, because it was so good as my uh, Mel Gibson. Uh, oh, you could totally do a great make him Blair. I'd have to work on it, but yeah, but that I, I felt that same terror in a uh, parent-teacher conference that. Jim Cummings' character did with being like, I'm the reason why you're having problems right now with my daughter, <laughs> my child. You know, he lifts that desk up. And yeah. This <laughs> is the best. Uh, just the, uh... when, he's in, when he's in trial with the judge and he's like, oh, I, 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 just, I just don't want to lose my kid because I said something stupid. Oh, I'm like, yep, that's how I'd lose my kids. That's how I'd lose it. It's such a painful scene. Oh. <laughs> but when Makeup Blair is like she she used expletives and taught the other kids their meaning. Like what? Like like pleasuring uh, a man or well <laughs> when a man pleasures another man or, or well, anybody pleasures a man from behind and then <laughs> reaches around to to pleasure from the front. It's called the reach around. Don't around. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly you just realize we're, we're adults. I just described and I've already it all. Just it's said the words. <laughs> I used the word to describe the word I was avoiding saying. <laughs> oh, it's such a good movie. Well, I'll think about some sketches uh, and how to maybe work because yeah, I don't it'd know. be nice if. if if Thunder Road character was doing Wolf of Snow Hollow instead, or if they were, yeah, everything else seems so. You're you're right. Every time I try to think of something, it's like, well, that's a spin on it, but it's a spin on it, and it does it well, and it's it doesn't feel any more clever. Yeah, uh, I could do uh, John Marshall. <laughs> it, this would have been better just to say it, um, <laughs> but John Marshall offering to. Do the eulogy at the victims' funerals in Snow Hollow. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. That would be pretty fun. <laughs> um, I just thought I'd want to come over here and do. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. I'll come up there and 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 talk about Hannah. Sure. <laughs> so we at the police department are working pretty hard. That, that's going to go through my head all night. I'm going to probably be working on that. 